This is Joel Robertson of Forgotten Flicks Remembers and the upcoming Thriller Movie Podcast. And you're listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. This episode contains major plot spoilers for Wes Craven's Scream from 1996. Uh, hello? Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Uh, I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around and stalks babysitters? Yeah. What's yours? Guess. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary. Well, well the first one was, but the rest sucked. So, you got a boyfriend? <laughs> Why, you want to ask me out on a date? Maybe. Do you have a boyfriend? No. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Hi, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a weekly show that's released every Friday, and this is our coverage of the Scream franchise and related properties. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shockbacker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh from Bogota, Colombia. You're still down in Bogota? <laughs> well, I just moved from Medellin to Bogota. Uh, you're still okay? You're still healthy? <laughs> I'm still alive. No always... weird in- infections or uh, missing organs? I've not been drugged yet. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I am I am Kyle Bishop, Dr. Walking Dead, broadcasting from beautiful Cedar City, Utah. Welcome, guys. It's good to have the whole crew here. For those who are new to this podcast or you're not aware, these are the official hosts of Horror Movie Podcast. Kyle is only here once in a while because he is very busy, okay? But he'll be back more and more, right, Kyle? Podcasting's like a drug. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's never as good as the first time, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what I meant. You're chasing that high, chasing that (laughs) dragon. Okay, before we get into it, I just want to remind everybody, two-second reminder, we are currently selling Horror Movie Podcast t-shirts, the official Horror Movie Podcast t-shirts. We have two different versions, by the way. We just mailed out our first wave of orders for t-shirts today. So those of you who ordered the very first run, you will be getting those within the next few days. I'm very excited about that. And we have had more orders trickling in since that. So just know that, you know, those will be printed and then we'll mail those out. Guarantee you, we are good for it. We'll send them out to you. Don't worry. Now then. As I warned at the beginning of the episode, this show will contain major plot spoilers for the first Scream movie. And in fact, 
These next few episodes are the official horror movie podcast Scream franchise reviews, and we'll be discussing the entire franchise in depth. You know how we do, reviewing the hell out of horror movies. So just assume that we'll be spoiling all of the Scream properties during these next three episodes. And in our next episode, which is episode 66, that comes out next Friday, we'll be reviewing Scream 2 and Scream 3 with special guests Matroid and Station from the Sci-Fi Podcast. And I think we'll probably save Scream 4 for the following week which will be episode 67, and that's when we'll also be discussing the new MTV Scream series. So without any further delay, let's move into our feature review of Wes Craven's Scream from 1996. Scary night, isn't it? With the murders and all, it's like right out of a horror movie or something. (laughs) Randy, you gave yourself away. Are you calling from work because Tatum's on her way over? Do you like scary movies, Sydney? I like that thing you're doing with your voice, Randy. It's sexy. What's your favorite scary movie? Oh, come on. You know I don't watch that shit. Why not? Too scared? No. No, it's just, what's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. Are you alone in the house? Randy, that's so unoriginal. I'm disappointed in you. Maybe that's because I'm not Randy. So, who are you? The question isn't, who am I? The question is, where am I? So, where are you? Your front porch. Why would you be calling from my front porch? That's the original part. Oh, yeah? Well, I call your bluff. All right, so uh, we're all fans of this movie, and I think it's really great that we're doing a little bit of a retrospective, inspired largely by the appearance of the Scream television series on MTV that's uh, just about to wrap up. But I wanted to set up some context of Scream before we get into the kind of the plot summary and then our analysis. Scream came out in 1996, and for those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, the 90s was kind of a, a... bad decade for horror films <laughs> um yes to say the least yeah uh, horror movies were particularly uh astounding in the 30s uh, i think we all know that that's kind of where the rise of the horror film came out yes. and then it kind of went away and it had some peaks and valleys along until the 70s came the 70s horror in full technicolor glory Some of the greatest horror films ever made come from that decade. Uh, Most of the key horror franchises were established in that decade, uh, and they continued to be developed into the 80s. In the 80s, the the country kind of took a turn. We got out of the war. The economy picked up. uh, We had some Cold War action that encouraged a lot of uh, war movies and and that kind of entertainment. But horror started to wane. Uh, It's funny how you'd think horror would be more closely tied to uh, warfare, but horror generally is close, more closely tied to economics. When the economic is bad, the horror films are good. 
So in the in the 80s, they started to, to disappear. Uh, we did get some bright spots. We got a Nightmare of Elm Street started going strong. We got some Hellraiser films, and we got many, many sequels to established franchises. But the truth is, uh, and there were obviously exceptions, uh, but horror movies started to lose their bite, and they started to become a little bit more comedic, a little bit more satirical, a little less inventive, a little bit more uh, reductive and more recycled. Until we got into the 90s. And then the 90s, oh man, those were great times. Clinton got into the White House, and all we cared about was sex and drugs and, and the dot-com industry and making money. And so nobody cared that much about horror. There was a lot of romantic comedies and action adventures and big-budget films. But horror kind of receded into the, uh, the margins. So the stage was really set for a kind of renaissance of horror where we as a country needed a, a narrative to come back and come out of nowhere and kind of slap us in the face. And of course, this is going to come from one of the most acclaimed directors of all time, Wes Craven, uh, most known for the Nightmare on Elm Street films. But if you go back further, uh, very engaged and involved director who did lots of amazing stuff. Plus a, a kind of up and coming horror writer, Kevin Williamson, who was active at the time, uh, writing a lot of horror scripts and trying to put together a new take on this old genre. And what Scream does that's really great is Scream openly admits from the very beginning, hey, a lot of this stuff has already been done before. Horror has been around long enough that things have become cliché. Uh, the plots have become predictable, the conventions have become recognizable, and there are certain rules that everybody who watches horror film films are really aware of. So Craven and Williamson said, let's make a movie about that. Let's make a movie set in a world in which the characters are aware of horror movies, which is a, a wonderful postmodern turn that you don't see in a lot of films. Uh, zombie movies notoriously exist in worlds where zombies don't exist or where zombie movies don't seem to exist because nobody seems to know what zombies are when they see them. This is not the case in Scream, as the characters are very aware of serial killers and slasher films and kind of the rules of the genre. In fact, as the film progresses, we find out that the people involved are all aware of these rules very overtly. That sets the stage for this amazing film, which is a serious horror film, a parody of horror films, a satire of contemporary culture and horror film culture. Uh, and also just kind of a new take on an old device. And so that's where we get Scream. I think it's important to remember that, you know, in terms of the horror franchises that you were talking about <clears throat> winding down in the 80s, this is a couple of years after Jason Goes to Hell. Um, we are looking at Halloween 6 has just been released the year before Scream. So it was an extremely dark point at, this, <laughs> at the time this movie came out. For me personally, I you know I was so bugged by horror in the '90s. Um, my experience was just you know basically just watching '80s movies. Still, I just would watch '70s and '80s horror movies, and I consider myself a fan. But I really didn't like many of the films being released in the '90s, and I was so bothered by kind of the adding of action, like you mentioned. You know, this adding of action and comedy really became the way they went with these things. You know, the Blade. Obviously, Blade started as a comic book, but still, I, I just 
remember being so put off sitting in the theater watching Blade, thinking like, well, I didn't want to come to an action movie. I, I came to a vampire movie. What's going on here? <laughs> and being so frustrated by that experience. But I think the 90s were the time of postmodern cinema. I mean, you've got Clerks, you've got Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. Right. And yeah. this is in that tradition of Miramax released all of those films. Um, and I think they saw Kevin Williamson's script, which was originally titled Scary Movie, funnily enough. And they saw that he was doing something similar to their Golden Boys, you know, particularly Quentin Tarantino. And I think it's arguable that Quentin Tarantino shows up in the Scream films in the form of Jamie Kennedy's character, Randy. I think right. he, you know, he works at the movie store and he's the guy that's giving you that in-depth analysis that Tarantino tries to throw into all of his films. And, <laughs> yes. And this is very much keeping with that Miramax postmodern approach to being so aware of pop culture and not shying away from it um, and really creating this kind of pastiche of all of the stuff that had come before, as Kyle said, I think, you know, it was, it was creating this really unique mixture. Now, of course that becomes very quickly overdone and all of the films that follow, but <laughs> at, at this point, you know, this was still felt very fresh. You know, we're just a couple of years after Pulp Fiction and this is still a fresh idea to be looking at things through a postmodern lens. And, and I think the great thing about Scream is, it allows all of us who really know the genre, who are really big, you know, horror nerds to be able to recognize all the references and get all of the, you know, the things that these characters are talking about and that the film is doing. But the film also allows you just to enjoy it on a visceral level. And I, I think of Scream as a gateway drug because to me, it was such an exciting thing when this movie came out. I was so excited that horror was back in a big way. I mean, Halloween 6... It may, I don't know what the budget was, but it made like $15 million in the box office. Scream comes along and $100 million just in the United States. And it was a huge hit. And I saw this the movie in the theater probably five times. And I took dates to this movie. I took friends to this movie time after time after time because I was so excited. The horror was back in a big way. And it was, and, and it was so accessible to general audience, to someone who didn't love even horror. And I think it teaches you, it allows you, if you're an expert to come in and understand the winks and the nods. And if you're a novice to come in and be educated on the rules of the genre and kind of feel like you're in on it, even if you're not. And I that's why it was so successful. You know, I used it again as this gateway drug to introduce my friends to look, look how great horror can be. I know you have never seen a good horror movie because all the movies that came out when we were in high school sucked. Look how good it can be. Yeah. You know, and and that's what Scream was for me. It was just something that I was so thrilled was happening at the time. And, you know, we did our top 10 horror movies. This didn't make it on my list, but I kind of feel like it almost could have. When we discussed, we did a horror palace special. I think all of us were on. Yeah. All four of us. Mm -hmm. And and this was my number one film of the 90s. Um, I, man, I just love this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dr. Shock, what do you have to say? Um, I'm in agreement with, with, uh, with everything, you know, and I like how, how it, 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 you know, I mean, you have the one big scene, obviously with Jamie Kennedy setting up the rules, um, where he's just sort of rattling off here, here are the four, here's what you have to do to survive a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but I even like how they, they'll always, they, they sort of set up the rules and then break them. I think one of, one of the scenes that always sort of made me laugh is, 
um, you know, when Sydney's on the phone and she's talking, uh, you know, she doesn't like horror movies because they're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking a big-breasted girl who can't act, always running <laughs> up the stairs when she's <laughs> run out the front door. So, like, a minute or two later, yes. Sydney runs up the stairs. Right. Of course. <laughs> to get away from the killer. Yes. You know, yeah. thing, things like that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think. And it was um, – and, 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 you know, and I do really uh, love Nightmare on Elm Street, the first Nightmare on Elm Street. I do think it's a classic. You know, I think it's, it's an absolutely uh, excellent horror film. But I've always preferred the Scream series, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Wes Craven wasn't involved in a lot of the other Nightmare on Elm Streets uh, or a lot of the follow-ups, at least not as hands-on as he was with the Scream series. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of the reason why. I'm not sure. But... I've always been um, more a fan of, of Scream. Well, there's um, that great line in the beginning with Drew Barrymore where he <laughs> says, um, ooh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I like that movie. It's scary. Yeah. And right. <laughs> well, the first one was, but the rest sucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Uh, and, uh, yes. and I guess, I guess um, Wes Craven didn't want to use that line because he's like, oh, it just seems like I'm cocky if I put that in the movie. And Williamson says, well... He did make Freddy's new nightmare, so or Wes Craven's new nightmare. So uh, it includes that film you made as well. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, fair is fair. You know, I have that. I attribute this film probably because this is back when this came out for me. I was like, what, around twenty ish or uh-huh. something? I think I was about twenty years old, and I, I wasn't too into film criticism at that point i'd always loved movies my whole life but i hadn't really thought about films in a critical way and this was the movie that i would attribute with um just kind of pointing out to me like the way that it pointed out how horror films work like much like the way we try to analyze things here on this podcast this film does that and i remember just being kind of just dazzled by the experience of all these little epiphanies I was having as I was being educated about how horror films are built and how they work. So I really mm-hmm. admire that. Yeah, I, uh-huh. I can absolutely agree with that and what Josh said about it being a gateway film. Because uh, this might surprise you all to know, but I really did not watch horror films prior to Scream. Um, i yeah. grown up in Utah. I was a good boy. Uh, I had actually not seen an R-rated movie until I went to college. Uh, and just kind of started to experiment on my own. And and the experience you kind of had there, Jay, with Scream, I had that experience with Seven, mm. uh, which which came out the year prior. And I had gone to see that alone in an afternoon at the mall, and I had no idea what it really was about. And it's I, I remember it vividly. I watched that film, and when it ended, I couldn't leave. Uh, I just sat there. <laughs> And, and I didn't really know what had just happened to me, uh, but that really kind of woke me up to film as art and and the complexity of cinema and how cinema is different from television. Um, and then when, when Scream came out, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, I, I could tell that it's referencing this tradition that I'm not aware of. Uh, so I actually approached horror in the reverse. I saw Scream and then I went and sought out all the references and saw all the films in retrospect and and kind of reconstructed what was going on. So then when I, when I approached scream again, then it was like, Oh my gosh, now I know what's going on. And it's kind of like from then on, I've been this horror film guy for the last 20 years. 
Oh, as long as we're doing confession time <laughs> about our about our dark marks on our horror record, I didn't used to. I did not appreciate zombie movies before Shaun of the Dead, and that was the movie that made me go, "Oh, wait, I kind of love this genre." And then it's become one of my favorites. And I think Scream operates that way as well. And we'll get into this later if we yeah. ever do our horror, horror comedy episode. Jason, we will, but, we will. <laughs> but I think one of the great things about comedy is it allows you to kind of get into it on another level of entertainment. And I think Scream is very funny, but it's never, um, you, it never sacrifices tension, it never sacrifices scares right. for yeah. the laughs. And and I think and Scream also works on a multitude of levels. I think there are some really good performances. I think there are actors in this movie who are pretty universally despised. <laughs> like, I think you talk about guys like David Arquette and Jamie Kennedy and Matthew Lillard. <laughs> Even though I like all uh-huh. those guys, I like them mostly because I love this movie so much. And yeah. I think normally if you say their names, people go, Ugh, I hate this person and um and i but they're so good in this movie all of them are pitch perfect and you bring back henry winkler who hadn't been in anything for years you know and and all of a sudden he's got a film career again you've Mm -hmm. got these young tv actors like nev campbell and it launches her career and now she's a movie star and you've got drew barrymore who was famous and was really famous but mostly for being in kind of that Lindsay Lohan era of her life where she was just making a lot of public embarrassing public, you know, decisions. And now she's back as a movie star again, following scream in a big way. And I just, there's anyway, I think scream offers so much. It offers great performances. It offers great writing. It's funny. It's scary. I think the whodunit aspect is something that, immediately draws me in. You know, I I love a good mystery. I think it adds something to the, just the slashers that we were getting, which were now that we know who the killers are, we're just going to see them killing and killing and killing the same thing over and over again. With this film, you you're trying to figure out like, who is it? And as they say, so well, Randy says, you know, prom night as your template, everybody's a suspect. And that's Mm -hmm. so fun. And that's so much fun. And, And honestly, I get a thrill out of that every time I watch the movie even knowing how it ends up. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the horror comedy aspect of it because I got a couple things to say about this. I hate that I'm saying this, but I have to. I I really do. And I don't talk about Scream very much. I don't know if people have noticed that, but I really don't talk about it a lot because it kind of forces me to admit that... (laughs) (laughs) I hate doing this. That horror comedy can work. And I think, <laughs> I think it does work in this scenario. But in the, here's a distinction I want to see if you guys can help me make or if this is just up the creek. But I think it matters on which order you say it, horror comedy or comedy horror. I think a comedy well, horror film is very different from a horror comedy. Um, well, I mean, I know people are like, what are you talking about? That's <laughs> ridiculous. But, but for me, I mean, I, I think the horror is more prevalent in this Oh, yeah. Uh, and and then, it doesn't sacrifice those scares. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. And I, so I think it can work. Is like, I have to think about the movies that I loved as a kid. The movies that got me into horror in the first place were Lost Boys, Tremors, movies that were coming out when I was a kid yes. that were really funny and uh-huh. getting me into liking that thrill of the scare because the comedy and the tension are working so well together in terms of like build, release, build, release. And, yes. and so, and I think Scream works that same way here as well. Jay, 
um, recently we reviewed preservation on movie streamcast and we had some of the horror movie podcast listeners were over there and they were giving you grief about your love of tremors because they couldn't figure out why does Joe love tremors so much, Mm -hmm. but he is always talking crap on horror comedy. And I think you give a, make a good point here, even though I think that one you could almost say is comedy horror. I think what the real thing for me is, is are the scares legitimate? Is the tension legitimate? And are those being paid off in an organic way that truly terrifies? Yeah. Side note, I I have the attack pack. We'll review all of tremors. And then, We'll get that taken care of one of these days. So, all right. Anyway, that was side okay. note. Go ahead. Who's next? Well, what about that idea, Jay? What? Well, I mean, are are you asking me? Because I actually think um, Tremors is a straight up horror film too. I mean, it's it does have comedy in it, um, much like this. Yeah, it's filled yeah. with that, but so yeah. is Scream. But there's different types yeah. of comedy. There's different kinds That's of. Humor. Why I mentioned it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I think um, I think that we get some of these ostensible horror films that are silly uh and and kind of like josh was saying the 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 jokes lead up to other jokes instead of the jokes leading up to scares and and a really effective way to use comedy in a horror is that you scare the audience while they're still recovering from a joke uh, because then they're completely off guard and their emotions have gone 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And then you jerk them back or you do that thing where they're ready to be scared and you give them a laugh and then they're laughing and then comes the scare. Uh, and, right. and scream really kind of set the stage for that in a way that hadn't been done before. There's a lot of dark humor in the seventies horrors, uh, where it's kind of ironic or it's kind of an uncomfortable giggle. Scream does play the laughs, but the laughs are not, you know, there's not a whole lot of silly, silly, um, but there is satire, there is irony, there is illusion, and then there is just kind of the jokes that we all were making anyway during horror films, like mystery science theater style, yeah, uh-huh. uh, where the characters are pointing out how silly things are and how ludicrous are, but that doesn't change the fact that they're also in mortal danger, right? <laughs> and and that's why I think Scream works on that level, and and. Uh, it's the perfect analogy that that Shaun of the Dead is to the zombie film, what Scream is to the slasher film, and and they have the right tonality where they can be funny, but they're both also really pretty scary films. They're legitimate horror. Or they're, yeah, Shaun of the Dead is actually a zombie movie, despite it being a zomcom. Yes. Right, and one of the, and one of the scenes in in Scream that I think it it really sort of w- walks that balance perfectly is where. Um, and it's late in the movie, and I'm not—I I don't think this is a spoiler—but uh, you know, Jamie Kennedy's watching TV, and he's watching Halloween, uh-huh, and, yeah. and he's—he's he's saying, "Turn around, Jamie! Turn around, Jamie!" <laughs> and meanwhile, there <laughs> really? is something behind him, right? And so you're feeling the tension, but you're also laughing because brilliant. He's, he's basically not doing what he's telling himself. Getting to do. butterflies in your tummy while you're watching right. that scene, right? <laughs> And and the and the postmodernism is so delicious because he's using her, the actress's name, which right. is his actual name. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so the, the layers are folded in so much that that scene is operating on like three or four different levels, and it's funny, but it's scary. Right. And and the juxtaposition of those two emotions is wonderful. Yes, and I think the reason why it still can be funny and scary. In, in that particular scene and in other scenes is because when the danger goes down, like when, when the killer is attacking 
it, it's it's real. I mean, they're uh-huh. they're genuinely scared out of their minds. They're you know because in some horror films, and this is when I think comedy horror doesn't work. When people are goofing off, I think they did this in Zombieverse, Kyle. With, <laughs> yes. when, when people are getting killed or like, you know, and then they're making jokes while their life is being threatened in the moment, yeah. then I think that doesn't work at all. Right. And another thing, another thing I really liked about this, too, and this is sort of sort of what the comedy, but not really, is is that, you know, unlike Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, who just sort of have this steady... This the ghost face is is a bit of a klutz. Yes, I mean he's falling all over himself. He's crashing into doors. Yeah, um, I was just going to totally bring that revolutionary. up. Yeah. Totally revolutionary. Yeah. Totally, totally different from anything we'd seen. Right. Yeah, and I back you on that. In fact, that's one of my favorite things about uh, this particular. I mean, after going through Michael Myers and Jason and all that, where you have these like Titan killers who are just yeah. monsters and machines. I love how in this the the ghost face is obviously mortal and can be kicked around and punched around. I mean, I, I actually kind of like that about this film. Oh, he gets yeah. beat up. Right. Uh, but it is it does play into that odd comedy tradition because it's slapstick and, and kind of out of context, it would be funny. But, and this is what you said, Jay, because the person about to be killed doesn't find it funny. Right. We have to ask ourselves, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> is that funny that he fell down or is that really scary because he fell down? It, it, because and it's I also think wild. It, it's so wild and it's so, it's so realistic, this kind of just frenetic assault that isn't the plodding methodical Mike Myers. That's just going to keep coming and keep coming. And it's, it really is this just kind of visceral animalistic uh, struggle to the death and, and they fight and the characters struggle and they get beat up and they don't get killed right away and they get injured and, and their injuries aren't fatal. I mean, all that stuff really builds to where you don't know what to expect. And I love Michael Myers but this is, you know, and of course we love Romero, but this is the fast zombie to Dawn of the Dead, to the Dawn of the Dead remake as, you know, yeah. Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees yeah. to Scream. Absolutely. Right. Mm, interesting. Kevin Williamson was a novice filmmaker. He was an aspiring screenwriter when this movie came out. And he had been working on his film Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which he eventually directed a few years later. That was the one he was trying to sell, and he could not get anyone interested in it. And so he went back to this idea, scary movie. They had kind of, you know, penciled out a a little five-page treatment for. And it was just this idea of this girl stuck in a house and being terrorized by a phone call. And, I, you know, you look at this film and it's got clear um, influences from when a stranger calls, you know, that whole mm-hmm. uh, the call is coming from within the house or or did you check on the children moment? That's all very present in the uh, in the Drew Barrymore scene toward the beginning. That also reminds yeah. me very much of the John Carpenter film Someone's Watching Me, which I have to believe is an influence since. Williamson is such a big Carpenter fan, mm-hmm. but he took this idea and he, he was intending to turn it into a larger treatment that an agent could go help him go pitch. And he went, I guess, to Palm Springs or something. And over the weekend, turned it into the entire script of Scream, as well as treatments for Scream 2 and Scream 3. Wow. And, and yeah, and so he went and he pitched this and they tried to pitch it to Craven and Craven wasn't initially interested. And they took it to a bunch of other directors. They took it to Robert Rodriguez. They took it to Sam Raimi. And they couldn't get an actor attached to it until Drew Barrymore 
um, was interested in being in the film. And then Craven heard about that and actually went back and said, okay, I'll do it since Drew Barrymore's in it basically. Oh, wow. And, and that's kind of what got the movie going. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's this huge homage to all of these horror movies that, you know, some, most of us grew up on, but also I think it's primarily Halloween, I think is the big one. And mm-hmm. I love how much Halloween is in the DNA of this movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what you described there, Josh, I think this is another illustration of a a film that's, I mean, I think the script is brilliant. I really do. But I also think there's a degree of execution dependence here. I think that if if, if this were put into the wrong hands, I think it could have been a real flop. And I could see, it kind of makes sense to me, like if I heard the pitch for this, especially in the 90s, you know, without seeing the product as I know it now, I might be skeptical about it, to be honest, because, you know, the slashers had really kind of run their course by that point. And so, but but clearly you could see what um, a competent director can do with, with good actors and a good script. Well, I think Craven had done some obviously landmark films, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think this is his best. I know that's really big talk, but I think this is his best contemporary work for sure. I mean, I think there is much to admire about a lot of his early efforts, but I, I don't know. I think I think Williamson brings a lot to the table on this, and I also think the actors do, as we mentioned earlier, because I think characters like Stu, played by Matthew Lillard, um, Randy, definitely Dewey, those are really flat on the page if you actually just look at the screenplay, or even if you just listen to the words they're saying. They're really right. nothing characters, but those actors elevate them so much by their weird, quirky performances, and a lot of the best lines from Stu and Dewey are improv lines. And mm-hmm. so I think everybody is just, you know, putting out a lot of effort and just really knocking this one out of the park. I think with Craven, yeah. you're forgetting about my soul to take as his best work. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That is his, probably his most reviled film. But anyways, go ahead. No, I, I really appreciate you doing uh, all the homework on that, Josh. I was shooting a little bit more from the hip. I didn't realize that it was uh, Williamson's first produced screenplay, uh, which is all the more impressive. Yeah, and I don't love the teenager stuff, to be honest. I I think the characters are pretty annoying um, in, in large part. And, you know, he went on to do Dawson's Creek after this and – and as someone said, Dawson's Creek is kind of like Scream without any of the killing in it. So uh-huh. just the really, really annoying teenage <laughs> characters. But I, but I think, um, I think someone like Sidney Prescott more embodies that just that teen angst. Where, but you've got all right. these other characters bringing so much life to the story, and I, I, don't know, I really appreciate that. Well, and of course, he's he's lampooning the the high school narrative while he's embracing it. Uh, just like he's doing with the horror genre. So the idea is that we're going we're to present these these high school students who yes. are all obviously too old, uh, but he's, he's going <laughs> to make them caricatures. He's going to make them annoying. He's going to make them so amazingly self-centered and so egotistical and, and have the sense of ind- uh, that they're indestructible and that they're entitled. 
And, and to me, one of the reasons why Scream works so effectively as the horror film it is, is because of that placement. I don't think it would work nearly as well as a film, or and certainly not as, as social commentary, if they were even in college. I think having them be high school kids is so key, especially in 96. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Could you, Kyle, could you expand on that? Because I'm not sure I'm following 100%. Like, so why is it? Um, key for them to be in high school, especially in 96. Why did you well, like that? Well, on the one hand, you get you get these... Uh, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but the victims of Scream are almost deserving to be murdered <laughs> in a lot of ways. Because if you go back to the 70s, right, and the rules that they talk about, the, you know, you, you kill the, the ones who have sex, you kill the ones who have drugs, who use drugs. Um, by the time we get to Scream, they're all flaunting that. They're all sexually active. They're all drinking. They're all doing drugs, whatever. Uh, so now it's like, now that we're in the 90s, it seems like the crime that is punishable by death is arrogance. It's entitlement. It's self-centeredness. It's mm-hmm. egotisticalness. That's not really a word. It's um, a good one still. <laughs> but I mean, I remember because I had graduated, it's to disclose my age, I graduated in 92, and my dad taught high school. And he would always say, Man, your class was the last class that I could stand. Uh, because it's like after 92, <laughs> apparently, the kids just got really obnoxious and really cocky and really snotty. And, and so by 96, you're really dealing with this kind of shift in generation where the kids are brats. And I think this movie does play that brattiness out, especially in The Killers. And, you know, this movie is almost 20 years old, so I'm not going to dance too much around spoilers. Yeah, you can go ahead. We'll, <laughs> but, yeah, we'll spoil but, but the main reason these two kids no, hold are on, committing... Before we do that, before we do spoilers, <laughs> I mean, because I know we're in spoilers, but I say this all the time, but never before in my life have I been more serious about it as I'm right now. If you have not seen this movie, stop the podcast and go watch Scream and then listen to the podcast. All right. Amen. Because I know there are, I know we have listeners that just listen anyway, but seriously, right. this movie is so much more enjoyable if you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be spoiled on this. No, you because don't. it's, no, it's you a don't. mystery. Sorry, Kyle. No, and and that's I, I forgot you had mentioned that earlier. That's one of the things that makes this film amazing is it is a mystery. It's it's a little bit of a detective narrative. It's the who done it. It's the who's it going to be. And and there's so many wonderful red herrings, and you don't really know what's going on until the very end. But the point is, and and they mention it, of course, the, the characters uh, embrace it. Um, especially Lillard's character, Stuart, is they don't have this like grand design. They're not a seeking of, uh, you know, overall, they're not really doing this kind of noble vengeance thing or trying to set the scales right. Billy is a little bit, but they're just kind of doing it because they want to see if they can do it. Uh, there's a lot so, scarier if there's no motive. There's no motive right. to go back yeah. to, to earlier films. But it is this sense in the 90s of these kids who think they can get away with it. They, they're entitled to do it. It's like we've watched horror films so much. We've got it. We can figure it out. We can take care of it. We're going to do it too. Um, and so that's why I think it's it's really a powerful piece that in so many ways is indicative of the teenager of the 90s. Two points which is, on that. Oh, sorry. Don't tell me what to do. I can do it myself. I don't need to be taught. I watched a movie. I can go and do it myself. <laughs> that's um, totally true. Because that's, that's what the movie is about. But the problem is the murderers, the killers, are forgetting that their victims are also 
cocksure and arrogant and there I can survive and I can fight back and I'm not going to take it lying down. And that's why it, it, the dynamic and the energy of that film is so great because it does have a whiz bang climax. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we can all remember the first time we watched it, because when that uh-huh. movie resolved, I basically went, you have got to be kidding. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> I did not see it coming at all. I'm with right. you. I'm with you. So this movie is largely uh, not only inspired, obviously, by all this film history and all these great movies we're talking about, but it was also inspired by a couple of real killers. Um, most notably the Gainesville Ripper. But I think mm. one that doesn't get talked about as much as the Gainesville Ripper is the Leopold and Loeb, if you guys are familiar with those guys. Uh, they, the, they're the ones from uh, that Hitchcock co- sort of covered in rope, right? Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Ro- yeah, rope was based on these guys. And it's that same idea of um, just, you know, we're so smart, we're going to get away with murder. We've got it figured right. out and the hubris behind that. And I think that for sure Billy and Stu are stand-ins for Leopold and Loeb in this idea that like the movies have educated us so well, and now we're the screenwriters. This is all a movie. Life's all one big movie and we can create the perfect crime and we're going to get away with it. But I think, you know, those characters there are those real people, sorry, Leopold and Loeb are so well known for this kind of God complex thing that they had going on. They were two homosexual men who, um, at the time in the twenties, when they were killing, felt themselves kind of above everyone else because they were living this lifestyle that no one they knew was, and they they kind of got this god complex idea that we're above society in our, in our own way. We're outside of society, and and so we can kind of do anything we want. And Williamson himself is a is a gay man who was who was out of the closet, and I think he you know he was very aware of these guys. And I think there's a case to be made for Billy and Stu kind of being these uh, gay couple, killer couple in a way. I mean, Mm -hmm. they have these girlfriends, but the girlfriends are these beards that they don't necessarily mind knocking off at the first opportunity, you know? And they, you know, I think I like this idea that Billy says that they say, look, it's scarier if there's no motive. We don't have any motive. Motives are incidental, but Billy actually does have this deep-rooted motive that Stu isn't really aware of. So I like the social politics of that, that Stu's just completely out of the loop on this. Mm-hmm. But I also do sense the sexual tension between these guys. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that's interesting as well. Well, and I mean, if we're, uh, you know, as a professor, I overread everything. Uh, but in, in their climactic scene, there it's it's this this symbolic sex scene where they stab each other um because because we often read horror films in sexual terms as the penetration of the knife you know it's it's the the murder of the slasher is is akin to rape but here we have a film where the two male leads are doing it to each other and so i think it's absolutely needs to be read in that way Mm -hmm. cut me too really dying here man oh yeah i mean <laughs> yeah. the, you know the you know there's a pain in there and Stu's dying and uh and he eventually reveals his motive is peer pressure <laughs> and so right i think that's also right. interesting the great punchline of the film yeah. uh but that goes back to my reading of the film as a critique of 90s teenage culture and, and just kind of um 
I, and I don't remember if that was right when it was happening, but but you know there was all the backlash of if kids watch horror movies or video games, they're going to be violent, and and everyone who does any, I mean, it goes back to Taxi Driver, obviously, but uh, there is this sense of are these kids violent because of violence, or is Sydney saved because of it? Is Sydney's awareness of horror films, in fact, the thing that makes her the final girl? And so I think they are playing with uh, the media culture as well. Yeah, the mo- you well, know the movies movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Right. The line. And this is a few <laughs> yeah. years before Columbine, but I think it is that. I mean, this was my generation, and I really see all these characters and people I knew, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know that hubris was definitely present in kind of the post Gen X generation, Gen Y or Gen Next or whatever they were calling them at that time. But mm-hmm. I, I totally think that was there. Mm-hmm. But I love the film, and and this will show up in our other discussions. But I love the, the the whole franchise's engagement with technology, and how things like like the phone or like the uh, the voice altering device, um, the video store, the VHS tapes, the v- VCR, um, all these things are really integral to the story. And that's actually what I think is the best thing that's going for the TV series, which we'll discuss later, is they've really updated that aesthetic, but it's still a horror film that is largely driven and and determined by uh, this kind of technological environment. Does that date the movie for you guys now going back and watching it to see these big cordless phones and all of the, <laughs> the that goofy stuff? I mean, well, for me, yeah. I, I was going to say maybe uh, – not maybe a little bit, but not. Uh, I mean, it's I, right I at that turning point before all yeah. the technology broke out, and so it is weird because it, the technology almost makes it feel ten years older than the look and the feel of the film are pretty modern. And right. So it's this weird right. kind of contrast. Well, not for right. me though, because like when, when I saw this, I mean, it, it really felt like a modern horror film at the time because it was, but it really felt like a modernized version and it's a really updated version of the slasher film. And since I've watched slasher films for so long, especially from the eighties and the early eighties, then it still feels updated to me. And even upon revisiting it, I, I still get that sense. And it's probably somewhat nostalgic of, oh, okay, this is a modern take on the slasher. But there's all that. What are you doing with this cellular telephone, son? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. That's odd. Yeah, but, but see, it dates it a little bit, but these franchise grows with the tech. And so it's, it's, we can't do the, the, we now have a cordless phone. Now we have a cell phone. Now we have caller ID. Now we have texting. And so it, it changes as the society changes. So that allows the narrative to be fresh. But I think we also can just approach it as a period piece at this point and, and kind of embrace it as the conventions for what it is. Now, when my kids come of age and I watch it with them, they'll be like, what the heck, Dad? And I'll have to explain what life was like in the 90s. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that's going to diminish the terror. I, I, the scares are right. not are not yeah. determined by the technology. They're just integrated into it. And yeah. and, and speaking of um, Sydney and kids, um, yes. if you don't mind a personal question, Kyle, you've said this before on the podcast, but I really want to know to what degree it's true. <laughs> so you want to tell I'll us? T- I'll tell you my story. Okay, I'll tell you my story. So tell, tell it. Um, I was uh, I was a very old bachelor for Utah. Uh, I was 26 and had pretty much given up on ever finding a woman to love me or to find (laughs) the right woman to love. Uh, and I, 
I had gotten to that point where I kind of had two or three questions that I would just ask a girl on the first date because I was, you know, I couldn't mess around just having fun. I needed to cut to the chase. Right. And and one of the questions was dogs or cats. Let's just establish that right off the bat. Ooh, ooh. If, she, if she said cats, I just took her home. You know, what's the point of a meal? <laughs> uh, so you're a cat man. I'm deeply allergic to cats. Uh, so I have to, I have to have dogs. Oh, you're saying, oh, okay. You're, uh, when if you said took were, her home, I thought you meant took her home. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Utah here, Jay. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, but. The other really important question was, do you watch R-rated movies? Because a lot of people in Utah don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have a pretty moral high horse about media content. <laughs> um, so I met this girl, and uh, she Please was also... Please rent the documentary Clean Flex on iTunes, yes. or if you want to know more about that. <laughs> Please watch that amazing movie. Josh uh, is the director, yes. It, that's my whole college career right there. So I met this girl and we went out to have dinner and she answered the questions correctly and dinner went well. And she said, you know, let's go back to my place and we can watch a movie. And I said, well, what movie do you want to watch? And she said, have you ever seen Scream? <laughs> and I went, hey, hey, you went, will you marry me? <laughs> I, mean, I think I found somebody here. Um, so we went back to her place. Now, this is a side anecdote, which I think is fascinating. She had seen Scream in the theater and loved it. She really, really loved it. And so uh, she was at a Blockbuster or something, which was a video tape <laughs> rental store, kids. Uh, <laughs> they would occasionally sell previously viewed movies. And she bought a VHS copy of Scream and took it home and watched it. And it is not the theatrical release. Whoa. Uh, it is a substantially more gory and graphic director's cut. Scandal. And, I th and we have no idea where the tape came from or how it ended up in that store. But as she was watching it, she, was, she noticed it right away. Um, the zoom well, you in. Know, you notice it on the, yeah, that first Casey Becker scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the Casey stuff is way different. Um, you see her entrails fall out of her body. The Ooh. zoom in on her corpse is a slow zoom with no music or sound. Uh, the climax is much more violent. They stab each other more. There's more blood and guts. Anyway, so she somehow had stumbled onto this director's cut VHS. And so on our first date, she said, when I said, well, I love Scream. And she said, well, have you seen, you've got to see this version that I own uh, that's much more graphic and much more scary. So we went back and we watched this video and it was, it was really amazing because I knew the film really well and so I could tell what the differences were, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, <clears throat> our bonding over Scream on our first date, <laughs> it pretty much sealed the fact that we were compatible uh, because at that point in my life, I knew I couldn't marry a woman who wasn't going to go to horror movies with me. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so I knew, okay, here we have some potential. Uh, so... <laughs> yeah that's many true. years pass many years pass and we have a baby girl and so when we had our daughter it was almost a no-brainer uh to name her sydney <laughs> because we wanted to name her after this wonderful final girl from these films i will not say tatum. though <laughs> not tatum no um <laughs> And we didn't want to name her Buffy because we didn't want to saddle her with that name for the rest of her life. Right. <laughs> the one point of the one point of discussion is Sydney's name in the film is S I D N E Y, which is the masculine spelling of Sydney. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I argued that we had to name her that version of Sydney. We had to do S-I-D-N-E-Y. Uh, but my wife didn't like it because she was she was spooked out by the fact that Sid would then be S-I-D, which stands for sudden infant death. Mm. Oh. And that kind of wigged her out kind of superstitiously. Yeah. So we went with the more traditional S-Y-D spelling. Uh, but that doesn't matter. My daughter is still named for Nev Campbell's final girl. Oh, wow. that's Very incredible. Cool. Now, see, that's like, that is equivalent, Josh and Dave, to me, of like Kenny Caperton living in the Michael Myers house. You know what I mean? Like, that's, right, that's right, legit. Yeah. That's legit fandom <laughs> right there. If you name your kid after a character in a movie, you're a fan. Nobody can even debate that. That's right. And right. just to, uh, for those who don't know, my son is named Xander, and you can draw your conclusions. oh you're awesome i love that so very impressive thanks for telling us that story that's super cool speaking of stories i i do like story time did you tell us more about like your your first experience watching this i don't mean to backtrack but i i don't know that i got that from you actually i had seen it on i did not see it in the theater i saw it on videotape Okay. When it first came out. And yeah, I was blown away by it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I had just in the 90s in general, um, this would have been around the time. This was the, when my uh, old, my now well, now 19-year-old son or soon to be 19-year-old son was, 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 was born. We had just been married. We were living in an apartment. Um, and I did not get to see as many movies uh, in, in the theater as I would have liked. Um, but I had heard so much about it and I definitely got it. Like as soon as it became available on video to rent and at, at blockbuster hmm. and yeah, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's funny cause I'm, I'm realizing here, everyone's talking about when they graduated high school. I just realized how much older I am than pretty much everybody on, <laughs> on, on this cast. Cause I graduated in 87. Oh, that's not that much older. Yeah, not that much older, but still, I was like all the, the I was the John Hughes years. Pretty much all the big John Hughes movies came out exactly <laughs> when I was in high school. Uh, was he a filmmaker? Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. <laughs> Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. You see, you push the laws and you end up dead. Okay, I'll see you in the kitchen with a knife. So let's just start at the beginning, now that we've set it all up, and talk about the movie, kind of start to finish. We won't spend probably too much time on all the scenes, but I think there's some really important scenes to discuss as we go through. And I think the first scene is maybe one of the most important. We've talked about this a lot on the show in the past, but I just want to reiterate here. I think this is one of the greatest opening scenes to a horror movie ever made. And yeah. of course, I think it owes a lot to, as we mentioned, some of those you know phone call in the house movies, whether it's Black Christmas or uh, Someone's Watching Me or you know when a stranger calls. But also, obviously, Psycho. This idea that the character who's 
the only recognizable actress we know out, you know, besides Courtney Cox, who doesn't show up for quite a while. Um, Drew Barrymore, she's the first person on the screen. She's the person on the movie poster. She's the yep. name on the movie poster. She's in the trailers. And she's who we think we're coming to watch a movie about. And she is so Janet Lee and Psycho. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and done in some ways even better because I think upon rewatch, there's a lot of wasted time in Psycho before you get to Janet Lee's demise. And with, and, you know, I say that as a, devotee to alfred hitchcock so i you right. know I, please don't eat me alive for saying that i love <laughs> but i do think this film is more economic about the way we jump right into the action and i absolutely love the way they do it um the scene is just so well directed so yeah. well written and perfectly acted and you've got drew barrymore drew barrymore apparently home alone cooking some popcorn, getting ready to watch a movie, and this phone call comes. And at first, the, f- the voice on the other end seems very nice and pleasant, but very quickly, it ch- there's a turn, and it escalates and into terror. And, and it's all built around this, how well do you know horror movies game? You know? <laughs> like, well, let's play a game. And and I love that. And, you know, it's so exciting the first time you see that scene as a horror fan. You're like, yes, like I'm playing along. Let's do this. And I think, you know, maybe not now that we've watched all of these Friday the 13th movies to death over in recent times. But I don't think there are probably most of us upon the first viewing. They're like, Jason, boom. And then you're like, yep. oh, crap. Yeah, yeah. that <laughs> that actually happened to me the first time I saw, I saw this movie. And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm so aggravated. Yes. But there's so much great stuff going on there because there is that moment from when a stranger calls of why haven't you checked on the kids? And so you just think, you know, well, you know, why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at. And holy crap, I was so scared in that moment and so excited because (laughs) this movie is going to go off. And you don't expect it necessarily up until that point. She's saying, my boyfriend's going to come over, so you better leave me alone. But you don't know if she's telling the truth. In fact, I assume she wasn't telling the truth. Mm -hmm. We find out later the boyfriend's been captured and gutted. And this is crazy. And it escalates to our main character, who we think is the main character of the movie, getting murdered in the opening scene of the movie. And in a way that, you know, in horror movies, the parents, the adults are always absent from the story. Here they come back. They come back during the moment of the killing. She is yards away from them, feet away from them. She can't speak. And she's raspy and mom. And it's so scary and it's so painful. Heartbreaking. The parents are on the phone. They can hear their daughter's voice. And there's also this popcorn popping all the time. So there's this thing that's just this ticking clock, boom, 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 that just won't let you go. And now it's catching on fire. And now the house is full of smoke. And it's just such a great scene. And it works on so many levels for me. Yeah, and and I love the parents. I just want to reiterate what you said about the parents there. Uh, You know, I said in previous episodes, horror has helplessness and and she is so helpless to reach her parents and then the fact that her parents, parents just are so helpless. yeah they're they're helpless too they just miss her death when they could have potentially saved her heartbreaking yeah, and that moment when they're on the phone like casey baby like that is so scary and just heartbreaking the sorrow yeah. that we talked about on the jason blum episode the sorrow in that yeah is so immense Yep. Yes. And that helplessness. Kyle, 
Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the psycho thing because I, I think that's part of the brilliance of what Williamson and, and Craven are both doing here is that for many people, psycho represents the first slasher film. And so for this movie to start with that kind of homage to psycho, they're saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to take you up through to the modern day. And when we end this film, we're going to end with this film. So this is going to kind of be this survey of the mm-hmm. slasher film yeah. uh, up until today. And it's the it's the pitch-perfect way to start it because we are talking about a generation that if they know Psycho, they don't have the shock that our parents had when they saw it where they went, what the heck, they just killed the star. Right. Uh, and, and so now we, our generation, gets to have that same emotional reaction where we're going, well, but she, she'll survive or they'll make it home in time or she won't die. Um, and so like Josh was saying, it immediately undermines all your expectations and all the conventions and, and before the movie has even really officially started, uh, <laughs> she's dead. For the main it. title. And not to jump out of this scene, if you guys have more to say about it, but the next scene I remember as a viewer, my first time, all of a sudden it goes to Nev Campbell in her room. She's alone. And then all of a sudden, boom. Billy's at the window, and here comes Skeet Ulrich climbing in, looking like Johnny Depp from yep, Nightmare yep. on Elm Street. And Not accidental. Go, yeah, but you think, man, she's going to die, too? Like, this movie is going to be insane. And I honestly, I thought she's in trouble. Like, they're going to kill all these people one by one. <laughs> right, and that's, again, the brilliance. It's like, hey, here's the here's the killer. No, it's not the killer. It's the killer. No, he's not the killer. <laughs> well, and Billy <laughs> plays that. I mean, Skeet Ulrich, who I am not really a fan of. I don't like just his whole vibe, but you got to hand it to him in this movie because he plays that he is the killer from the first scene of the movie mm-hmm. yeah. and there never tries to hide it as a character. Like he's right. just the killer. Yep. And and somehow the movie manages, you know, obviously there's a twist involved, but they manage to pull that off even without the big twist. Well, it, again, it's because we're so, we think we're so used to the genre we say, well, he's so obviously the killer, he's the last person who could be the killer. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he's bloodthirsty. Like oh, he's yeah. giving evil stares, and he's openly talking to Stu in front of the rest of the people. Like, nobody said that. Like, he's very clearly, <laughs> very clearly, like, I killed the people. So, you know, just so you know. Anyway, it's pretty crazy. Your read on it was amazing. And, and yeah, I think I, I like your uh, insight into the popcorn, which has always worked so well for me, but I've never been able to put my finger on it. And it's got to be Jiffy Pop, doesn't it? It just, it doesn't work any other way. <laughs> which was old fashioned at that time. Yeah. You know, people were eating, like, but, but how great. And it also gives you that bit of nostalgia for your own childhood. Like, oh, Jiffy Pop. I, I remember that. But now yeah. your childhood's on fire. You know, and yeah, it's the same thing. She starts out, she's having this conversation with him. She's fondling these knives. Eventually, she's killed by these knives. I mean, it's pretty awesome. It's it, it works so well. If this was a short film, it would be like the greatest short film ever made. And I just think it's yeah. such a great opening scene. It's a great vignette because it, it is completely self-contained. It could be just this tragic little short film in which the she dies. You know, and, and the killer pulls it off. And I think building on that tradition and playing with so many familiar uh, films, but also playing on everyone's greatest fears and paranoias. I mean, you can, I don't really care how old you are. When you're home alone, <laughs> you're not 100% confident in your safety. Uh, maybe, right. that's just, maybe that's just me. But the, <laughs> no, that's I think we can all relate to that. 
And Josh hit all the great turns on that when when yeah. you realize he's watching and when you realize that the boyfriend coming over wasn't a lie. And and it just it, it surprises at every turn, climaxing in that in her uh, amazingly horrific and unexpected death. Mm-hmm. It puts you so off balance because this movie is going to get you and it's going to surprise you. Yeah. And th- that game lets you know this movie is one step ahead of me as well. Like it's thinking a step ahead of where I'm thinking right now. And that's so great because that, that really is what the movie unfolds to be. It is teaching us like, Hey, this is where the nineties went wrong. And, and I'm going to show you, you know, what horror is all about. And and, and in such a new and refreshing way, I think, I don't know. I just, I'm clapping right now to myself. (laughs) Another reason it's very bold actually is because of, all the references to these classic horror films in that opening scene, they talk about Halloween, Friday the 13th, a nightmare on Elm street, um, the exorcist and like all of these like big, huge landmark films. And I think that that is bold because first of all, there's that happy association that we get, but also it would, it would immediately draw comparisons in your mind, whether it's subconscious or not, but it's Uh like, it's like, remember this great horror film, remember this great yes. horror film, and you're watching right. our horror film right now, and so that's kind of risky, but this film nails it. Well, this is going to sound weird, but I teach, uh, when I teach early American literature, I teach Whitman. Whitman, as a poet, came out and said, Emerson wanted someone to be the great American poet, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> and then he was. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and there's a, there's a hubris there that you just have to admire. But you're you're dead right, Jay, because it's like look at this litany of great horror films that this film will soon be a part of, right? And now it is. Yeah, uh, and I do love that, and I love that it, with the postmodern sensibility, they're not referencing fake horror films; they're referencing right. actual. Horror and and these are characters who have seen those horror films just like we've seen those horror films yeah which is which means and weren't alive when these films came out oh yeah interesting and and which means because the characters that we're watching have seen these horror films and we've seen these horror films (laughs) these characters die maybe we could die like when we're watching it right because it's we relate Yeah, and, you, you know, and these are the move things that we as horror fans have always been screaming at the screen, as Kyle said, like Mystery yeah. Science Theater style. But now it's showing us why these cliches exist, why these tropes exist, or it immediately explodes them all apart and does it a new way that we haven't seen before. And so ah, it's just so exciting to see as a yeah. horror fan. Well, and, and one of the things that makes horror movies work is you have to place yourself in the position of the victim. And once they become too common, too trite, too familiar, you can't feel threatened anymore because you would know the way to get out of it. And so this film says, aha, you think you know what you would do. You think you know how to get out of this. You think you know what's coming next. And uh, one of you just said this. As viewers, I think it was Jay, as viewers, we have to admit, oh, oh, crap, I guess I could die. (laughs) I guess all all my research and all my study is in vain. And now I can allow myself as an audience member to really feel terror because I don't feel the safety of my familiarity. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah, and one and one of the points that I believe is uh, crucial to good horror, it's not necessarily on every single horror film, but I think the great horror films have it, is 
with the Sydney character, I mean, horror happens to those who deserve it least. And her her scenario, her situation with her mother and everything, it, it's really heartbreaking that horror would befall her after all she had been through already. Yeah, and it's a plot point that gets overlooked a lot, I think, when people talk about this movie because there is all of this postmodern critique and all the fun, like, you know, killer scenes. But the backstory of this film is pretty crazy and tragic and not what you get in a lot of slasher movies. You know, yeah. to have this thing happening where, you know, she's had her mother killed only a year ago. Now it's the anniversary of her mother's death. Now this killer might be coming for her. I mean, that's something I think you kind of almost forget about, uh, yeah. after, you know, what with the film, but then all of a sudden also this realization as the film goes, we're having the same realization as Sydney because we are identifying with her. Oh, well maybe this rape was actually consensual sex. Maybe, you know, this murder was, she was kind of part of the reason that this happened. Like there are all these other things going on with this character that are pretty complex. Right. right. Like all of a sudden, all of a sudden the, the, the mother becomes, um, you, you know, like Sydney has to just see her mother sort of be taken down, you yeah. know, like she's not the woman she was originally thinking she was or. And so much you know, so that random girls in the, the heist rest, know about her yeah. reputation. Right? Yeah. Here's how, here's how everybody else in town views the mother. Uh, and, and she's brutal. sort of exposed to that. Yeah. So all this stuff going on and plus she's dealing with that. Mm. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, and I think that's why the movie – another reason the movie succeeds is these characters are real characters, even though I don't love – even though I don't think they're great representations of, of high school kids, or at least they're pretty annoying representations of high school kids. They, <laughs> they're they at least very complex characters, uh, pretty much all of them. You know, I think even Tatum, who probably seems the most – surface level of all of them actually is pretty interesting and she's got this thing with her brother and in any other movie she would just be the big breasted blonde bimbo who gets killed but in this movie her brother is like you know this interesting relationship with her brother is humanizes her a step more right. than you usually get out of characters like this all right kyle yeah i know you kind of covered this in the beginning in the in your very introduction to this but it just makes me wonder why a movie like this or or this particular movie itself wasn't actually made sooner in time. I mean, I I know it seemed like the 90 the suck of the 90s kind of set it up, but it it's it's weird that we didn't have this because like for example, and these are not comparable of course, but you had the the 70s disaster films like um Airport and then you had Airplane, you know. Right. And so I it seems like it would have occurred to someone to do some kind of a meta self-referential spoofing of the genre before this point. Well, people will say popcorn. People are yelling popcorn yeah. at us right now. Right. People will say Wes Craven's new nightmare. I think this movie gets right. Everything that that movie gets wrong in a lot of ways. I, one of the reasons we see these cycles, I, I mean, I talked about how part of it's economically driven, but another thing that we have to recognize is that a lot of times um, the new filmmakers are nostalgic for the films of their childhood. So whereas Craven isn't that way, I mean, he was he was the filmmaker for whom this film is nostalgic. Uh, but for someone like Williamson, it is. It's like, so he grew up in the 70s and 80s loving these kinds of films, and then there weren't these kinds of films, and now he's in a position as an adult with some talent to make it happen again. 
And so you do kind of see that nostalgic uh, cyclical nature of almost any genre because the best artists, I think, are the ones who are fans of the genre in their youth. I mean, that's overly generalized, but... I also think it took the popularization of this postmodern critique and kind of looking at films in more academic ways than had been done in the past. I think Tarantino is a huge part of that. Yep. Um, but, you know, there. I don't think this is Airplane. Like, I think nope. Scary Movie, you could say, is right. Airplane. Right. right, exactly. No, I, I agree. I, I mean, I don't, I don't put it on that level. But I shuddered a little bit when Kyle said this is a parody because I think of it more as satire than parody i think you're right kyle but but i think when i think parody i think more of kind of the naked gun movies and i don't think this is that i think it is very um it it it, it keenly observes these rules and then it it works against them and, and to me that speaks of postmodernism. More oh yeah no i agree. i agree it's definitely more satire it's it's parodic but it's probably not parody because it isn't it isn't mel brooks Um, it's, it's, uh, it's serious enough and it's a love letter in a way that the comedy is, is infused in it. So parody is not the right word. There are moments that feel a little scary movie to me. And I hate those moments in the movie. And I think as the franchise continues, it gets away from how grounded this first film is, because I think even though the film functions as satire, I think the rest of the films are even more so they're so blatantly satire satire as the as the franchise progresses and they allow themselves more quote-unquote i will call scary movie moments and yeah. i don't they feel out of place in this movie like here's one that everybody seems to like that i talk to but i really dislike is wes craven's cameo in the movie <laughs> where he's playing fred the janitor and it's just like okay i mean it's cute but it, it, does, it feels out of place in this movie it does it would feel right at home in scary movie but in this movie well, it feels like come on like, yeah, be better than that. Yeah, it's a little beneath the material, the rest of the material. But uh, a quick question for you guys in this same vein. How do you feel that Scream relates to something modern to us, which is like uh, the cabin in the woods? Uh, how do you feel about those two? Like, the I think this is so much stronger than Cabin in the Woods. I think it's working on so many more levels than Cabin in the Woods is for me. I like Cabin in the Woods, but... Yeah, I really like Cabin in the Woods, uh, but it's it's a very different kind of humor. It's a very different re- revisionist narrative, hey. um, and and so I don't know. I could see that they're in the same <clears throat> basic area, but they're they're not the same kind of text. I I see them as related though because of the way that they kind of deconstruct aspects of the genre, especially <clears throat> with the Cabin in the Woods. And and spoilers, everybody, for Cabin in the Woods, if you haven't seen this yet. I guess I should give a warning for that. but And I won't go into it too deeply, but it really kind of investigates the, the monsters and the way those monsters work in their various narratives. Not really, though. Yeah. I go back to what I said earlier that Scream isn't. Cabin in the Woods is awfully silly. Um, yeah. and, I, and I like the silly because there's a time and a place for silly. Um, but part of the problem with, with that film, which I do love, is it's not always sure if it's a parody or a serious film. And I think uh, Scream hits the right note because of this satire that Josh is talking about. So there's scenes in Cabin in the Woods that are just really ludicrous. And then suddenly we're supposed to be mortally terrified. And, it and also those down. characters are 
are archetypes in Cabin right. in the Woods. And these, yeah, these characters are as well, but they're also real deep characters. And I don't yes. get that as much in Cabin in the Woods. I think – and I, I always draw a lot of ire from fans of Zombieland for this. I love Zombieland, but I don't think it's anywhere near the film Shaun of the Dead is. I think – and to me, I, that's how I kind of imagine Scream and Cabin in the Woods relating to one another as well. I just feel like – one is operating on such a deeper level and understands the genre so much better. Like I don't feel the same knowledge of the genre in zombie land as I do in Shaun of the dead. I feel like the craft is on such a higher level. The end product maybe is two enjoyable movies that look about the same and are about as funny and about as fun. But I don't think the effort behind the camera is contributing to quite as rich an experience and as rich a text to then go back and analyze in the way that we're doing. Gotcha. I just love the high school setting, not for all the reasons that Kyle said only, but also just, I love that it's very nostalgic for me. And maybe it was because I was in high school at the time, but it felt like, okay, I'm in this small town. I'm in high school. I I just loved the setting. It was very real and palpable. And I liked that it wasn't shot in Los Angeles. It's shot nearby still, but it it has a feel of a real place. And I like that about it. I like feeling like, oh, I'm in this town. And I like feeling that as, you know, Dewey says the town, the dreaded sundown, this whole town is kind of, um, in fear of these killers. And that is also, again, truthfully related back to the Gainesville Ripper uh, story. But I like that this whole town is kind of on lockdown and all these students are afraid for their lives. And, and and there's like a communal vibe to that. And everyone's kind of in it together, you know, to not get knocked off. And, and I don't know, just those scenes in the video store work so well for me because then how loose uh, Stu and Billy are playing everything Knowing that there's a killer on the loose, you think these guys are crazy. Like, why? Why are they acting like this? <laughs> they have very good reason to be acting like this. They're not scared at all. Right. But you yeah, don't I, know that I think the video store scene is is one of the most powerful, effective scenes of the whole film. Yes. Because that really is when both the the postmodernism hits you in the face, but it's also the great dramatic irony moment, like you're saying. Um, that when you go back and watch the movie the second time, that scene's entirely different. Yes. Yeah. And I love Henry Winkler. Um, and I like his scene. I love that postmodern speech he gives about, you know, talking back to us as the audience saying, you kids, <laughs> you know, you kids these days. And I love the speech he gives. <laughs> right. Um, but that kill feels a little out of place to me. There are a couple scenes, I guess the Weinstein's injected into the movie. Um, when they got Williamson's script, they said basically nothing happens for 30 minutes. Like for them, there's like basically 30 minutes where nothing happens. So you need to get the killer in there a couple more times. And they throw in this scene of uh, Sydney and Tatum, I believe, at the grocery store being stalked by Ghostface, which oh, yeah, is ridiculous. Right, right. Like, and maybe that's just a random kid in the costume. You know, we know that there are pranksters about, mm-hmm. but that's such a dumb scene. Like, why would he, they would? There's no way they're walking around a grocery store just like that if they're the actual killers. You're going to wonder if that's a shout out to Intruder. Maybe. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> but then also there is the principal Hembry scene 
you know, and his his death, and that was not in the original screenplay. That was at the Weinstein suggestion suggestion that there needs to be another kill. And apparently, this worked out great as it gave them a reason to get rid of all the kids at the house at the end, which Williamson didn't have a good reason why everyone left the party, and so now they can uh-huh. all, go, hey, check it out, Principal Henry is hanging from the goalpost. You know, let's let's go pull him down or whatever. That um, that gives a motive for everyone to leave the party and leave our main characters secluded in this, in this great party scene, which by the way is like the second half of the movie. I love that element of it too, but I don't know. What did you guys think about the Hembry scene? Does it bother you that that doesn't seem connected to the motives of these killers or I don't know. Does it seem outside of the film to you guys at all or no? Yeah, I I can see. I definitely see what you're talking about. You know what? I I suppose it does because it's sort of, yeah, there, there, there really isn't any reason for it. I guess it makes you know, more it, sense once you, or I guess it makes less sense once you know who the killers are. Probably doesn't right. bother you on the first watch because, right? Well, but as as you pointed out, they 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 put it in to solve a plot problem, which makes it make sense. Yeah. Uh, it, it, is there motivation in killing him to? clear out the house so they can finish what they started in privacy? Um, or is it a, a further manifestation of their increasing arrogance that now they're going to take yeah. out the chief authority figure simply because they can? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It, it never bothered me, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see how it sticks out a little bit. It has a little bit of a sore thumb nature to it, but at the same time, it's like, especially in slasher flicks, I mean, it seems like the killer will end up touching various aspects of the main character's lives. Sometimes like, like they'll reach out and, and snatch people, the killer will out of various aspects. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm okay with it. Ultimately. Winkler's so awesome. I mean, yeah. whatever. I, yeah. I love his whole performance. <laughs> I love playing with his, his Fonzie persona. Mm-hmm. I love the, <laughs> I love the letter leather jacket in the closet. Uh, the, yes. the implication that this is the Fonz grown up. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's <laughs> subtle enough that it's not like the Fred Krueger cameo. Right. Yeah, right. I agree with you there. I like it as well. So I love when they go to Stu's house, and I love that party scene, and I think it's so great that it's basically this forty-minute scene that all plays out of this house. And how awesome is that? I, I, you know, you feel like you're going from scene to scene and location to location pretty quick in the beginning of the movie. And then just the last 40 minutes is at this farmhouse and it's just a killing spree and it's scored by Halloween. Most of the time. I mean, yeah, to me, that right. was so awesome as a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that it, it also is great for the social commentary I mentioned earlier, the idea that these kids are, who are so indestructible and, and invincible have a party to celebrate the, the murders that it's the, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the break the curfew party or something. Yeah. The like. break the curfew party. Uh, let's, let's, let's transgress and try to get killed. And Oh, now we're all getting killed. Uh, but I do love how, how unserious they are about the situation and, and how this is kind of this commentary on this numb generation. Hey, some of our best friends are dead. Let's have a party. Uh, at this party, let's watch slasher films. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's such, in reality, it would be in such poor taste, but it really yeah. kind of hits the nail on the head of the type of generation that the film is uh, lampooning. 
Mm-hmm. You've got this goofy. We haven't talked about Gail Weathers too much, but you've got oh, yeah, Courtney Cox, you know, as Gail Weathers, which is a totally over-the-top character to throw into a movie like this. But somehow it worked in that time period in like the Sally Jesse Raphael kind of like Jerry Springer time when all these shows were on. It kind oh, of yeah. felt right that she would be there doing her little expose <laughs> on on mm-hmm. the small town. That's well, the shock and, journalist. Yes. But about her, though, I mean, I think her character is a little bit problematic as much as I love Courtney Cox because, you know, she she starts out, she's so obnoxious and offensive and um, witchy, okay? But, you know, her character arc, it really changes in a way that I don't 100% buy. Explain. Well, I just, I just feel like, you know, she she goes from being a heel more or less to being, you know, one of the heroes. And that, I think that bothers me a little bit. Well, to be an apologist, I would say that for the first half of the movie, we get her journalist uh, persona. And then in the second half, we get the real her, uh, that she's just kind of driven by the story and the sensationalism and the surface. Uh, but then when, when she's, her life is in danger, it's we we get to see beyond beneath the surface, mm-hmm. and there's something great about Deputy Dewey Boy that kind of softens her up as well. She right. doesn't she doesn't start out that way, you know. And she's when she's first talking to him, you think, oh my gosh, like there's no way he's buying this, and he is. You know, she's flirting with him, and it just seems ridiculous. But he his vulnerability. The, you know, the, the vulnerability that David Arquette brings to that character is so perfect. And I don't think it's on the page. Like, I don't think it's in the script. I think he does it. And I think it really, to me, that's, I buy her transformation based on her interaction with him and his vulnerability allowing her to kind of open up a little bit. Mm, that's an interesting take. Did, yeah. Did they meet on this film or were they already a couple? No, they met they, making they this They met movie. on this film. Yeah. 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 And then they were married, I believe, by the second one, and I think they were getting divorced by the fourth one. Yeah, yeah, twenty thirteen yep. is when they split. But um, and I wonder if his character, the the deputy character, I wonder if he took any degree of inspiration from Enos from the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> I just wondered. Enos, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, they they they're the same sort of. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, that that uh, I guess. I oh, guess. shucks, ma'am. It's the same ma'am. sort of like good-natured, good-hearted yeah. type yeah. of character, you know. But uh, yeah. But know. another amazingly well-written character, like that scene yep. at the there's there's so many great scenes. But the one I love is at the police station where you know he says, "Hey, what did mom tell you? When I wear this, you know, badge, you treat me like a man <laughs> of the law." You know, like that is such a brilliant because that's yep. the reveal. That they're brother and sister, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. Just, yeah. I just love that moment, and it's so funny. And you get that scene later when Sydney's staying at their house, and he comes running out with his gun, and it's time just enough that he could be the guy on the phone, right? You know, right. It's right. just enough that he is also a suspect. But then right. he runs out, and he's got his gun in his hand. What? what what's going on? And she's just so dismissive of him, like. It's and over. that's one of the, that's what <laughs> I think. Also, that's maybe why it works, Jay. Her sort of transformation at the end is those characters could have easily just been the stereotypes that, yeah. okay, these are the guy, these are, these are just the characters who are going to sort of be there in the background and, but they develop them further too, yeah, they which is not something, not something you always got. Yeah. You didn't always get that in the slasher films. 
Yeah, it's um, they're like all the these cliched characters, and then all of these twists on them. Like, you know, Dave. Oh, you know, we know what Dave hates. You brought it up last episode, Jay. The jumping cat scene, and yeah. Scream has the jumping cat scene, but it's doing it to make fun of the jumping cat scene, <laughs> right? Because right. it set, it sets up this cat door or you know dog door that the cat runs through, and then later Tatum gets it in this in this dog door. And that's kind of a silly kill, but I, I love that they're playing off of this cliche and then immediately, again, giving you this kind of new twist on it that, you know, mm. that elevates it. That I, is brilliant. I do love that kill because even behind the mask, you can tell uh, the killer, because I can't remember exactly which one of it is at the time. Uh, but the killer is really curious to see what will happen. <laughs> yeah, they're like watching, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of has that head tilt where it's like, huh. Yeah, like the yeah. Michael Myers head tilt. Yeah, huh? broke, her, broke her back and blew out the motor. Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are some continuity things that bug me about that. The way, just the way it's shot, like how far she's in and out of the door, but yeah, that's, you're a that's filmmaker. A, Let it go. That's a nitpick. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, while we were on the character work there, one thing that I think allows the killers to work so well, especially when we were talking about earlier in the video store and how nonchalant and casual they are. I think the reason that they're able to do that is because of how irreverent and disrespectful they are. The entire movie, especially pertaining to, people's deaths and and they're yeah. just horrendous and that that's one of the things i remember like the first time i saw this i remember like not being offended but thinking man these guys are really offensive with the things they're saying and doing and right. so i think that's yeah. great character and to me work. that's yeah. the 90s <laughs> yeah these, that's funny these, yeah these kids who have never seen death firsthand or, or who, who haven't lived through a war who haven't who haven't had any hardships because let's not forget that most of the kids in this movie are rich uh and and so you do have that kind of we've been living in a bubble and for us horror and terror and tragedy is all on it's all fiction it's all film even when it's in our own town we don't grasp the gravity of it until it's us and this is a bit of a digression but it's on the topic kyle's talking about i they're when George W. Bush was president, there were all of these protest bands and protest songs that kind of came out of the woodwork, particularly from the punk rock music community. And a lot of these guys had been making just goofy fart joke songs for most of the 90s. And then all of a sudden they were getting political in the early 2000s. Right. Yep. And there's this guy named Fat Mike. He's the singer of a band called No Effects, which is the largest independent punk band of all time. And uh, they're interviewing him, and they're like, "So what is going on here? Where, why were you just making all these goofy songs and parody songs all through the '90s when punk was in its heyday in terms of popularity, like the biggest it ever got in terms of popularity? And now." you're getting political all of a sudden. And he kind of pointed to the same thing Kyle pointed to. He said, you know, Clinton was president. Life was pretty good. There wasn't a lot to be angry about. And now there's this war and, and I'm not trying to get political on the show at all, but just, I think there were, you know, there was kind of a malaise during the nineties and dot com and, and, and life was, you know, there was a lot of easy living as you know, and all these things Kyle has been saying. And I think that, permeated a lot of pop culture and uh, not just horror, but also music and a lot of these other things. 
yeah, I mean, there is a complacency. And, and I also don't, I think it's important to recognize that Scream didn't really kick off uh, a horror renaissance like it kind of wanted to. It, it did for itself, and it was effective for itself, but we really didn't see the rush of the remakes and the new horror films until uh, after 9-11. So it was kind of like, hey, let's, let's try to still be scared in the 90s, and everyone was like, that's awesome, but nah. <laughs> let me, I want to watch an action film or a romantic comedy. Right. So, so it's a, it's an anomaly in a lot of ways in the middle of that decade. Not that it's the only decent horror film. There are other horror films, yeah. but nothing like we saw from nine eleven from uh, two thousand eleven to probably two thousand thirteen or so when it was just gangbusters. It just spawned copycats, basically, just trying to copy the success and, and right. Uh, pattern of the film but when did when did scary movie come out because i think the it was pretty fast wasn't it it was 2000 i think scary movie came out that was a spoof of both um scream yeah. and i know what you did 2000 last summer. oh that's right yeah yeah but i mean yeah, and you've got i know what you did last summer which is also kevin williamson and um you've got urban legends and i think a lot of these films campfire tales i think they're all kind of playing in the same ballpark yeah, but to go from from established source to parody in four years is is something. <laughs> yeah, again, it's the same company. You know, it's the Weinstein's getting greedy. I think <laughs> knowing that they've got this title, scary movie, and thinking, "Huh, what can we do with this?" Oh, but yeah, that's that undermines my argument. <laughs> but, no, I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. But they're all they're also just you know businessmen. So yeah, good use of evidence, Josh. <laughs> okay so i i know it's getting late in this particular review when we're recording this it's almost uh one o'clock for dr shock he's gonna get up at 5 a.m he's only got four hours of sleep so uh dr shock we're gonna send you off but he will be joining us later on for our scream franchise review okay so as as far as ratings for west craven scream from 1996 Dr. Shock, where do you fall? Honestly, I'd give it a, I'd give it a 9.5. It's brilliant. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's one of those movies you can watch over and over again. Even though you, you realize what's going to happen, it's still just excellent entertainment. And it is one of the great horror films, I think. And if you're looking at the 1990s, I mean, I'm a fan of Candyman. But mm -hmm. as far as you're looking at the movies that like really, you know, shook it up and, and got horror back on track, this is the film. I mean, it was dying and this this brought it back. Yeah. So Dr. Shock says 9.5 out of 10 and you call this a buy, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, you, you have to have it and, you, and get it on, um, you know, get it on Blu-ray. Well done, sir. All right, guys. I will uh, talk to you later. Here's how we play. I ask a question.
Name the killer in Friday the 13th. Jason! 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 I'm sorry. That's the wrong answer. No, it's not. No, it's not. It was Jason. Afraid not? No way. Listen, it was Jason. I saw that movie 20 times. Then you should know Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, was the original killer. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. I'm afraid that was a wrong answer. You there's a bonus round, but poor Steve, I'm afraid he's out. So just briefly, you know, Gail showing up at the party with Dewey, I think it's funny because, again, adults aren't around. Or if they are, you know, as we see with Sydney's dad or the principal, they're not faring so well. But in some ways, Gail and Dewey are kind of – you know, uh, Dewey's a man child for sure. He lives at home with his, his mom and his sister and, and Gail's pretty immature as we see throughout the early parts of the film. So having them there feels kind of right. And they're going through their own kind of coming of age together, I think as well in their own way. But I love the device of her bringing this camera in, sneaking Mm -hmm. it into their party, hiding it above the television. And it sets up all these hilarious and scary scenes for this last half of the film. And I love that we've got uh, Kenny, the cameraman out in the van with Gail <laughs> sometimes in there kind of observing what's going on. And, and there's, you know, a big exposition scene or a big character scene. And then it cuts to Kenny in the van going boring, <laughs> which I think is just great. Like knowing you know, the film knows exactly what it's doing yes. and it's so good about constantly changing things up. And I think just adding that additional layer is one of the things I, I really loved about the movie. Yeah. The, the delay on the feed is so crucial to, to both the jokes and to the fear, to the terror. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because then it does become, Instead of us watching characters on a screen, we're watching characters on a screen watching people on a screen. <laughs> yeah. And knowing that they're in danger, too, and knowing that there's a delay and knowing that they could be in trouble. You know, I love that about it as well. Yeah, this is like one of the only instances I can think of in horror where I'm okay and it actually works where you're watching characters watch a screen. Because, yeah, that makes me nuts, usually. <laughs> Well, yeah, because it begs the question, is someone watching you on a screen? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many layers are there? Uh, but it but it does do that thing where it's like we are aware that this is a film. We are aware that, that, that you are consuming it in this fashion. And we're going to play with those conventions by blurring the lines between the screen and reality. And and so that way, on some level, when you leave the movie theater, the lines continue to remain blurred for you, and you go home scared, which is the goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and so in this setting, you know, they're talking about which movies they're going to see, and they they mention that Jamie Lee Curtis is the Scream Queen, which which is a nice little shout out to her, and and Halloween, which we're going to be seeing play out through the rest of the course of the film, but I love that Randy gives you these rules and we've had a few of them peppered throughout the film up until this point, but he's really explicit about, you know, the rules for surviving a horror movie. And, and, you know, we've touched on this already, but there's the drinking and doing drugs, there's the sex. And then the joke one, I think at the end, but it also is true. Like never say you'll be right back. Cause you won't be back. You'll be right. dead. And I love that Stu says, I'll be right back. And he's the guy that says it. And he right. does end up getting it. And Jamie Kennedy says, all right, I'll see you later in the kitchen with a knife. I, I like, oh, I just love that. Like the movie tells you everything, but it still surprises you as it's happening. It's brazen. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the characters you described. They're so brazen throughout yeah. the film is, oh. is as well. Yeah. I mean, well, how- yeah, the characters and the filmmakers are both saying, we are going to tell you the truth. You will not believe it a hundred percent. And even though you, we will tell you what's going to happen, you will still be shocked and surprised. And again, they're going to break all these conventions. So as soon as Jamie Kennedy is saying you can never have sex, we're upstairs with Nev Campbell, who's going to lose her virginity, to the person who killed her mother and is planning <laughs> on murdering her later that night. I mean, that's pretty dark if Woo-hoo! you think about it. Oh, that's yeah. something you don't, it's, you don't really – I don't know. I, I, to me, that's part of the film I forget because I get so caught up in all the referential film stuff. But that is a dark plot if you really think about it. And I love that she does lose her virginity, but she's still able to become the final girl. And they're saying, look, like we're going to break this horror convention. Yeah. And it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. But that, and see, that's also such an, another great – because you guys know I'm a cultural theorist. Mm-hmm. Whereas we, where are we in the 90s as opposed to the 70s? Well, in the 90s, premarital sex is now okay. Uh, it's it's kind of shifted those conventions, and and now you can have a beer and have sex and not be evil and not be worthy of punishment, and and you can still survive and you can still use your wits. Um, but it's also then saying that pop culture and film is a good thing. Uh, that it's it's that familiarity that that gives these kids the life experiences they wouldn't have otherwise in order to survive. But is it also setting them up for failure because Billy believes it's all a movie. This is all one big movie, you know, and I love, I love Nev Campbell's line, you know, can I be in a Meg Ryan movie? (laughs) You know, I think that's (laughs) funny, but this is a slasher and they are in a slasher and they know they're in a slasher and that's just, that's brilliant. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But see, but it's like the media betrays the killers, not the victims. Yes, uh, which is just a, enough of a twist that you go, oh my gosh, okay, and it is a rebuttal in some ways to the critique of the genre, um, while just kind of having fun with it. I mean, really, just reveling in the multi-layered criticism and and defense. And we know that Billy's the killer the entire movie, as we've mentioned. But then all of a sudden, in this scene, here comes Ghostface Killer, and he comes in and he kills Billy ostensibly, (laughs) you know, they'll be like, okay, well now what, you know, now, now what are we to believe? And Nev Campbell runs off and falls out a window, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all this Uh stuff. (laughs) But um, I don't know. It's, it's so interesting. And then, but the one thing I wanted to ask you guys is, is it a cheat? Is, is the two killer thing brilliant or is it a cheat or is it both? Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, I think so too. I don't, I don't think it's a cheat at all. I think there's sleight of hand going on, and I think you could go, hey, that's not fair. You were, we were supposed to think of just one. But this isn't the first horror movie exactly. that, re- that reveals the murderers to be more than one. Right. Yeah. So I think it's an effective enough twist because the film to that point, as the detective film, has proven there's no freaking way any of these people could be the killer. Yeah, and, and so the only solution is it's more than one of them. Mm-hmm. And it's all paid off so well, not only by Billy's speech with the, you know, it's pig's blood, or what does he say? It's corn syrup, the thing, same thing they use for pig's blood and carry. But that amazing speech that happens in the kitchen, where yeah. all of this theory is just laid out on the table by psychopaths. And I love that scene in the kitchen. I think it is one of the key scenes of the movie. Well, and we were kind of, was it, you were the one who was bagging Lillard earlier? 
Um, I love Lillard, but I think he is despised. I, oh, okay. I love him. Yeah. I think his acting in that kitchen scene is off the hook. Oh, uh, he's hysterical. <laughs> he's psychopathic. He's in pain. He's bleeding out. He's pissed. He's amused. I mean, that's the pinnacle of his career, which is apparently over. I, I haven't seen it. Right. He, he was in The Descendants a couple of years ago. Which is oh, that's great. right. He was in that one. That was a weird role for him. And he's, dire- he's directing now. He directed a great little film called Fat Kid Rules the World. But. Oh, well. Well, good for him, if you're listening, Mr. Lillard. Uh, but right. this was such a great <laughs> moment for him. And and it does, on the one hand, it really effectively underscores uh, the coldness of Ulrich's performance yeah. and how detached from reality Billy has become. But it also kind of upstages him a little bit, which doesn't bother uh, me too much. I love uh, it. Because <laughs> they're both insane in totally different ways, mm-hmm. absolutely, and they both yeah. sell it perfectly. I, I think um, Matthew Lillard has such an intensity and so much energy, and people give him a hard time for mugging and being the same character and blah 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 blah. But he is fully committed in these in these scenes. He's all the way there, and and more. Like he's a hundred. He's the definition of a hundred and ten percent. And it and I, it's so believable. Like I believe he is bleeding out on the floor. Yeah. In that seat. Yeah, he pulls it off. He, he's actually a really talented actor. It's very convincing. And that line, you know, the my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. Is ad lib. <laughs> yeah, is it? It's so yeah. great. Houston, we have a problem. It's more cliche now, but it was also ad libbed at the time, which was which was a fresh reference at that point. So I don't know. <laughs> That's- he's great. But Billy's argument which shifts on a dime. It starts out with the movies made me do it line. It talks about how they're going to get away with all of this, how they're going to kill everybody that they have a problem with. And then they're going to walk away as the heroes. And that's all so convincing. And then immediately it's undercut by the revelation that, well, actually Billy does have a motive and it's this whore mother idea, you yeah. know, that, that Sydney's mom broke up him dad and his mom's marriage you know and it got his dad to leave his mom and and broke their family and and it's an interesting choice it feels like un pc now to say like well does she have to be a whore like do we have to go there do we have to call the mom a slut the whole time but you know that happens you know these things are these things really happen they you know their families do are really broken up and it's believable it's a believable motive for murder and i love that they go both ways with that i love that Billy has this deep rooted, you know, intense reason to kill. And Stu is just crazy enough to do whatever stupid. Mm. He's the, I jumped off the bridge because my friends told me to jump off the bridge guy. Yeah. But, but it is, then you kind of get to have both ways. You get to have it both ways, which is perfect, which is perfect. One thing I hate about the end of this movie is Sydney turns the tables on these guys. She escapes and she shows up later in the ghost face killer mask with an umbrella. That has got to be my least favorite moment of the movie. <laughs> yeah. What, after, you, after Fred in the hallway mopping. What do you think the, the thinking was on that? Like that, that doesn't really make sense. There's no reason for her to put the costume on. Right. No reason whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. She hides it. She hides in the closet. I don't know. I think it's just to give you that moment of what else, what else is happening. Now we know there are two killers and now there's another ghost face attacking them. And whoa, isn't that crazy that she turns the tables? I don't know. It's just a bad directing choice in my opinion. And I, mm. it kind of 
cheapens the scene for me a bit. But mm-hmm. Agreed. And then Jason, I mean, my biggest question for you. Okay, so I love that whole scene. I love Oh, it works so well because Halloween is playing. So you're getting the Halloween score, which is so <laughs> iconic. Yeah. And also you're getting the, the actual dialogue from Halloween. So you're hearing Jamie Lee, Lee Curtis screaming. It's incredible. And, you know, and, and it's so good because Dewey br- busts into the house and he's got his gun drawn and he's looking around, city, city, where are you? And he's so, and he's so scared. And there's that great scene where she doesn't know who to trust Mm-hmm. Oh yeah! Oh yeah. my gosh, that scene is so good. <laughs> and Dewey's like, "Let me in, let me in!" And all of a sudden, Stu comes hopping up. And he's like, "It's it's Randy. He's crazy. He stabbed me." You know, and th- that whole scene is so intense. Yeah. And we talked about this. We've talked about this on our Cujo discussion. But that that scene in the Jeep, I also think, is so intense where the killer's outside the Jeep. But Jay, I wanted to ask you about this ending because it is a pretty sunny ending. All of the people we love survive. Randy back from the dead survives. Mm-hmm. Gail and Sydney survive. Dewey back from the dead survives and the sun comes up and that's a happy ending. So well, how do you feel about the ending of Scream? <laughs> well, I feel like it's a horror comedy and you know how comedies are. I mean, comedies are still upbeat you know, and, and, and I think, I'm not saying I love that fact. I think it works. And I think that because it is a comedy, because it's a horror comedy, you know, if it had gone like super dark on the ending, then that would have been a very bizarre approach, right? Then it might not have been quite as logical a horror comedy. I don't know how other else to say it. So, I mean, you all know I don't love horror comedies, but in this, I have to say it works. I have to admit it. No, I mean, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that. And I wonder if, I mean, that makes sense to me. Your explanation makes sense. I was thinking about it in terms of, there's the scene where Jamie Kennedy says, this is the time when the supposedly dead killer comes back for right. one final scare. And I was thinking this is them killing what came before them. Like they shoot Billy in the head. Sydney says, not in my movie. Right. Which is a super cheesy line. But, like they're killing all these cliches that have come before them in that moment. And they're mm-hmm. saying, no, you know, we're, we're surviving this and we're moving past this. And that's kind of how I took it. Well, and in that's so many ways, if, if the film is about processing the popular culture phenomenon or artifact of the horror film, then the, the goal of the protagonists is to successfully navigate that information and, and process that information. So I think, I think the only way it can succeed is, is with that kind of sunny, happy ending. I think all the, they were dead, but they're not dead is disappointing. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but I do think that this is, this is an, a variation on the final girl triumph, yeah. which is I'm, I didn't survive because I'm, morally pure i didn't survive by blind luck i survived because i figured it out because i i understood better than they and i was proactive and not to mention that but the two guys who you think are going to help her who are the the you know love interest who is the quirky guy who's in love with the beautiful girl and usually in the movies they end up together in the end they don't let jamie kennedy don't let randy have that he doesn't come and save the day he's helpless and sydney is not dewey is the cop he comes in with the gun he's brave enough 
but he doesn't make it and Sydney does and Gail does. And it's a, it's a pretty strong feminist message there. And like you say, an evolution, I think of oh, the final girl. Absolutely. But I think if Randy and Dewey had died, it would have been much more powerful. Yeah. But I love those. Guys. I like those guys. So much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy they're alive. Well, if were they all, were they already, out, if only to lay out the rules of the sequel in part two. Well, right. And were they already eyeing the sequel at that point? Um, because the, they're both pretty essential for the second film. I think actually, I don't, I don't quote me on this, but I do think the addition of Dewey surviving was a was a late addition. Um, I think Randy was always intended to survive, but I think Dewey was actually like, wow, that was, he's pretty good. Do we want to keep him around? That makes sense to me. Yeah, because the performance is just, I think it's strong. Yeah. So I love the kids here, and I, I hate to rip on other movies, and I always rip on this movie, these movies. But th- compare these Scream kids to the Friday the Thirteenth <laughs> franchise kids for a minute. I mean, Easy. there's so much more depth. <laughs> there's so much more depth. Hmm. I mean, especially as the franchise continues. Maybe the first film is is decent, but think about that Friday the Thirteenth franchise Part Eight, which I love. There's no you know, these kids have. Every one of them has got something going on. Every one of them has got their own story. They're they're very clear, distinct characters. They've got their own motivations. And I don't know. I think I just think it's really well executed. Well, for that matter, I mean, if you could say the the killer has more depth than this film yes. than Jason Voorhees as well. I mean, as far Maybe as that goes. This is Voorhees, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that. It's just a product of, of what it is. Like, I mean, it's just a pure, <laughs> like, 80s-style slasher versus this is something that's definitely more complex because it's it's also a commentary. It's also a point in time where we're saying horror films can be quality. They can be serious. They can be complex. They can be deep. Because a lot of the criticism that people lob at the horror films from the 70s, which we love so much, is that they are kind of shallow and superficial and two-dimensional and and stereotypical. And so here we're starting to see a, a horror movie that's really presented as a drama with that kind of depth of field of character. And so I think we we start seeing a lot more of those types of horror films. Unfortunately, we continue to still see the other type as well. <laughs> so I have got a couple nitpicks. One of them is bigger than the other. So there's the thing of I I think Randy is my all-time one of my all-time favorite comedic relief characters in a horror movie. I love that he is the stand-in for us and better than any other kind of stand-in for the horror audience. I think Randy perfectly kind of is us in this movie. Um, but why do all the other characters know so much about horror movies? Why, I mean, I, you get that this is a group of friends and they watch, you know, crappy movies from the video store together often, but I don't know that I buy Sydney having the knowledge of horror movies that she does. I don't know if I buy Tatum being able to pull out the, I spit on your grave reference. I don't, you know, like, I don't know if, well, yeah, the thing is, I, and I agree with you to some extent. However, like if if they are hanging out with these horror nuts all this time and they're always quoting and talking about horror films, then right. you could see how that would rub off on them. Randy is so proselytory just from the scenes we see. You've got to imagine that he is constantly talking, constantly making them watch movies, 
constantly forcing his opinions on them. Because I've got friends who love things so much that I know tons about those things, but I've never had direct contact <laughs> with those things. Same. And so, so to me, it's, it's actually pretty plausible, especially, and I know this is a little bit of a cheat, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, between the scenes, whether there's, there's more uh, conscious effort for them to figure out what's going on or not. So it actually doesn't bother me. I think maybe there's a little suspension of disbelief, but for the, for the film to work as the way it's set up, these kids have to have a working knowledge of this genre. Yeah, I mean, and, the, and movies in general, because Tatum reveals that she knows secrets about all the right moves and where to pause that tape. And, right. uh, and, and Billy, you know, his initial pickup line at the beginning of the movie you know, revolves around the exorcist and the TV edit of the exorcist, which is pretty, a pretty bad pickup line <laughs> to convince right. a girl to hook up with you. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they are definitely talking about movies a lot. I guess I just don't get then. Why is, why does Randy have to sit there and explain to them who Jamie Lee Curtis is? at the party later on. But anyway, okay, that that's a nitpick. Oh, because there are people at the party that aren't in their social group. It's okay. a it's a bigger party. Plus, it's for the audience, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 As you know, <laughs> that's my least favorite line in screenwriting. As you know, you're my son. <laughs> yeah. you know, your mother died last year. Yeah. And uh yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> right. Right. My other nitpick from this film is Cotton Weary. Like, why why oh, do yeah. we get more of that story? And was Liev Schreiber added in post? Like, did they have some other actor on screen and they knew, like you say, they were going to make a sequel by the time they got this movie close to, to airing? Did they throw in a shot of Liev Schreiber knowing he was going to be cast as Cotton in the sequel? Um, because under what circumstance can you justify hiring Leo Schreiber just to be right. uh, an extra who's only seen on a television screen without dialogue? <laughs> I, I think it's gotta be. And cause we've seen this enough that if, if you're not sure that there's going to be a sequel or things are going to progress, it's an unknown actor who's then recast when it's a, it's a recognizable named actor in a, in a very, very brief moment, there's something going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when when something like that happens, when you see somebody like that, especially somebody with a reputation, you know, it, it it's gotta make you wonder. Like the first time you see this film, right? It's gotta make you curious. Yeah. About his, yeah. his ultimate role and what it's gonna be. It's just weird, like well, that was Leo Schreiber and he like he didn't even say anything the whole movie. I don't know, that's kinda weird, but No, I think I think they totally knew by that point that they were, they were going to move forward. Yes. Because this movie was a huge success. I imagine it was tracking very well early on. And like I said, you know, Halloween six who, you know, that Miramax released the dimension released made about $15 million in the theater. This made over a hundred million dollars in the U S. So they knew this is a huge movie for us and we're going to keep doing this. Um, and you know, this movie goes on to be, a huge success spawned four sequels and now a television series. And, you know, one thing is that's interesting is I don't, there, there's a lot of blood and guts, but like Kyle said, there's kind of this director's cut version, the original cut, which was received in NC 17. And so they had to go back and cut a bunch of elements out is available. Um, 
kind of bootleg at like horror conventions and things like that on VHS and probably DVD by now. But I'm wondering, it seems like at this point they would release that. See, and and I'm, I'm convinced that's what I have. Okay. Is, is that bootleg original NC 17 version, because it is substantially more gory. Interesting. And some of it, some of it looks like it's not completely post-produced. Yeah. What do you guys think about the score? Because I like it. I don't know if it's held up very well for me, but it is fitting for the film. Uh, I, I agree, but I got to say it's not hugely memorable. Yeah. Yeah. I do like the soundtrack. Like, I think there's some great rock songs in this movie that are memorable, like Red mm-hmm. Right Hand and right. School's Out for the Summer and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I what Kyle said is exactly how I feel. I mean, I think it's I think it's fine, but it, it doesn't like stick with me very much. I mean, I don't remember if they used it in the fourth film, but it remains through the third film. And man, it was getting old by then. Sydney's theme, like, oh, like I'm, I've had enough Sydney's theme. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But of course, you've seen this first scream, like what, 35 times or something in your life? like Easily, <laughs> easily. I bought all of the VHS. So when this came out on VHS, there were different covers. There was a Nev Campbell cover. There was a Drew Barrymore cover. They had one with each of the characters. I own, I bought all of those. <laughs> um, I, I own several different copies on DVD. I have the Clean Flix DVD, just from my time oh, making that movie. Yes. Awesome. I got the Blu-ray, and I'm and it's now available on iTunes. Might as well download that for my phone. So, yeah. Well, Wolfman, Josh. I, in all seriousness, as much as you love this, and you reference this film a ton and this franchise a ton, it's just you. so in my head, dude. Like well, I, I feel I'm embarrassed how much I reference it, but yeah. Well, no, and that's not a criticism. I'm just saying that you clearly love it, and you clearly know it extremely well, and so like. I mean, I I am just shocked that this isn't in your top 10 of all time. I mean, yeah, I mean, I was looking back over my top 10 today thinking, I wonder what number Scream is. Yeah, because <laughs> you know? let, let's go through real quick Josh's I'm, top. I'm really, I'm really solid on my top 10, I decided. But yeah, let's do it. Josh's top 10. Number one, Halloween, 1978. Yeah. Number two, The Thing. Number three, The Lost Boys. Number four, mm-hmm. Psycho. Yeah. N- number five, The Shining. Number six, Jaws. Number seven, Day of the Dead. Great pick, by the way. Number eight, <laughs> An American Werewolf in London. Number nine, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1956. You could probably bump that one for Scream. Um, no, number 10 <laughs> is <laughs> Nosferatu, 1922. So what I'd do is bump Invasion of the Body Snatchers. No way. Put Nosferatu at nine. No put Scream no at way. 10. I, you, how often do you talk about? Snatch- how often do you talk up, about that? It doesn't come up very often, but well, it, the body snatcher movies are my favorite subgenre. That was a movie that was one of my early introductions to a horror feeling. You know, I saw mm-hmm. that on TV as a Same. kid. I love that movie. It's one of my all-time favorite. I mean, look, Scream. It's my number one movie of the '90s. It's probably my number eleven movie of all time in terms of horror movies, and it probably makes my top thirty. Movies of all genre. If I was to rank those as well, do you want to? Do you want to hear me take off the entire audience that listens to this podcast? Yes. <laughs> here I go. Here I go. I'm famous for this. Um, I think then in that case, what you said about number nine, I think I say just bump Nosferatu because he's only in the film like nine minutes on screen. <laughs> <laughs> those are all like every one of those movies you mentioned are life-changing movies for me and scream is as well but um 
Yeah, I don't know. I just had life changing experiences with every oh. single one of those movies. What about Kyle's? Yeah, Kyle, yeah. Let's, let's not. It's not on my top ten. I know we got to pick on Kyle. Okay, here's Kyle's list. Everybody, Doctor Walking Dead, number one, Poltergeist, nineteen eighty-two. Number two, Alien, nineteen seventy-nine. Are you sure you didn't mean Aliens? No way. Okay, just kidding. <laughs> Although I don't know, these lists are so fluid. I don't know if Alien is still number two for me. Okay, number three, you have Shine, The Shining, nineteen eighty. Yeah. Number four, The Thing. Number yeah, which five. I think should be higher. Probably. Number five, Dawn of the Dead, 1978. Yeah. Number six, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974. Yes. Absolutely. Number seven, Hellraiser, 1987, of course. Um, Halloween, the original. Yes. Yeah. The Evil Dead, 81. And then The Exorcist, 1973. So that's your number yeah. 10. So, so yeah. I say bump Hellraiser is my vote. What do you say, oh, Jay? Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, Hellraiser is super freaky, guys. Hellraiser is underappreciated. Yeah. And I don't know if the remake stalled or fell apart, but they were going to remake that one when they remade everything else. Yeah. Like, yeah, people, uh, seriously, we got to review the Hellraiser franchise. We've had requests for that as well. And it's not that I'm super excited to review the whole franchise, but... I can talk a lot about the first movie. Yeah. I can talk about Hellraiser ad nauseum. But I would like to point out that the reason Scream is so important, and you know, because we named our daughter after after Sydney, is Scream would be on very high on a collective list with my wife. Most of the films on my top ten list would not be on hers. Interesting. Uh, although we both agree Poltergeist is number one. Um, and I, we don't want to name our daughter Carol Ann for so many reasons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> what about see, Reagan? <laughs> Scream is super important for us as a couple and for us as a family. Uh, but when ranking my top 10 for me personally, talking horror, um, I don't have it on the list. Partially because my, my top 10 horror films, there's not a lot of humor in that list, if you noticed. So yeah. Kyle, where where can Scream fall? Do you think on your list? I, I oh, think it, mine can safely be at eleven. Honestly, to tell you the truth. Oh, I would not dispute it at eleven or twelve. I would. I I can't think of anything I would probably put above it. Um, I think Blair Witch is in there though. Yeah. Have actually. you revisited that one lately, Kyle? A couple of years ago, okay. uh, and I it still scared the crap out of me, and I was shocked. By how much profanity is in it? Oh man, yeah. I don't so know why, much. but the last time I saw it, I was like, "Oh my gosh, they swear the whole time." Yeah, that's, but it's still that's actors left on the, to their own devices. <laughs> but but that movie, that movie still works for the last ten seconds, uh, which is some of the scariest footage I've ever seen in my life. Well, but yeah, so I would scream is definitely in my top fifteen. I would have to, you know, have some soul searching to figure out exactly where it goes. But my favorite horror movie list, I was really focusing on horror horror and not horror comedy or comedy horror. Well, well done, well played. But Kyle, speaking of soul searching, though, <laughs> I, I do have a little bone to pick with you because looking at your list and you, you are the zombie man. Okay. Um, yes, I'm a little shocked you don't have Night of the Living Dead, but I'm like, okay, well, he has he has Dawn of the Dead, and which is probably why he doesn't have Day of the Dead, but how come you don't have Fulci's Zombie, 1979? Why is that not in there? I'm just... uh, 
Fulci Zombie is an amazing film, and it's really an interesting film, mm-hmm. and it has some landmark moments that are ab- above board of anything else out there. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's not the greatest film in the world. <laughs> so, um, Kyle, mm. I'm not asking you to find the specific spot, but kind of give us a ballpark, like top 15, top 20. Where did Day <laughs> of the Where did Day of the Dead and Fulci Zombie land? About and, and Night of the Living Dead. Let's yes. Night of the Living Dead would be in the top fifteen. Okay. Uh, Day of the Dead is going to be down around the twenty area. Okay. And Fulci's Zombie is going to be quite a bit lower. <gasps> top top fifty. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll probably top maybe thirty ish. Okay. Uh, Fulci's Zombie is is a great horror film for its tone and its style, and for the eye gouging scene. Um, and it's one of the great moments because of the zombie shark scene. Mm-hmm. But the criteria I have for great horror film, it's not quite there. It does, I'm not frightened by that film. And that's really my motivating factor for my list is movies that scare me. Mm. So, Jason, I'm going to turn the tables on you. <laughs> okay, I, bring it I, on. I can tell that you have a certain level of respect for Scream. But oh, I have yeah. not gotten that you love the movie and i'm curious where does it land for you generally like on your horror list it's definitely not in your top 10 does it make your top 20 does it make your top 30 where are we at yeah see uh you will probably notice maybe people have noticed i don't talk about it that much at all and i think it's because it's kind of a chink in my armor on my critique of (laughs) horror comedies because i Largely, I mean, generally speaking, I don't feel like horror comedies work. I think there are exceptions. Scream is the strongest exception. I think Shaun of the Dead is a strong exception. And even Zombieland. I mean, in in Tremor. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll have to talk more about Tremors (laughs) at a future date. But I, I do have a lot to say about that one. Really, it's the situation of Tremors. It's the fact that it's um, siege narrative related survival horror and yep. survival horror. It, it, yep. It's those two facts and beastly freaks. It's got yep. all three of my things. And it's like the comedy's like, okay, you know, I put up with stuff so I can the have comedy my other is stuff. really funny though. It is funny. Genuinely funny. So, and, okay, and so it's a scream. Yeah. Where does, yeah. It, where does it land? Okay. See, you trying to pin me down with this. Top hundred, give me something. No, okay, okay. No, I mean it'd definitely be. I mean, wow, it'd definitely be in like the top thirty-ish. I would say. Okay. I, I mean, I I really do respect it. I I honestly do, and I can't argue when people bring up screen. That's why I don't talk about it that much. Because when people bring that up and throw that in my face, it's like, okay, well, I can't say much about that. So, yeah. Well, Scream to me is how Jurassic Park is to you. I, you know, I used to <laughs> just put it on every day while I was doing other things. Right. In fact, um, all three of us here, I believe, were missionaries at one point in our lives, and um, you know, we, on our missions, we weren't allowed to watch movies except for we were allowed to watch the Star Wars movies and Disney movies. I don't know why those were allowed. Wow, you were allowed. Yeah. Wow, well, um, you had it. You had it easy, man. Serious. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we, I got to see uh, episode one in the theaters while I was. Uh, oh. Yeah, I picked up on that the other day. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I used to walk around. We used to go at what is called tracting 
this is miserable. I don't know why I did this for so long. <laughs> we used to go and walk around and knock on doors hours on end. Like, I don't know how many hours a day, you guys. Nine, nine hours uh, a day? Eight or nine a day. Brutal. A lot. Brutal. <laughs> brutal work. But a lot of that in between time was me describing from memory movies that the guys <laughs> I was with had not seen before. And one of those was Scream. And I would tell these guys the entire story. And I'd seen it so many times. I could tell them almost line for line, start to finish, the entire plot with much of the dialogue of the film. And they would be so enraptured. And then we'd get to the next door and we'd have to stop and put our game faces on (laughs) and like start to get ready to talk about, you know, heavenly things. Right. (laughs) And there was much there were many times when these guys would be doing their door approach where they would kind of have to, you know make their sales pitch for what we were wanting to talk about. And I could tell their whole heart was not in it because they wanted to get back to what was happening on scream. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that, oh, that's man. Pretty, yeah, that was bad news, but, um, <laughs> that's, funny. that's but awesome. We had a good time. Oh. Good time. That's hilarious. Now, and, and, and Josh <laughs> also, I mean, speaking of proselytizing, there was a friend that Josh converted to horror altogether just by, having him watch scream right i mean you've told that story before well and actually he was the guy he was a guy that i just told about scream he had not even actually seen it oh yeah that's right when he fell in love with it so yeah same character same same situation he was a guy that i had told all about scream then he went home and watched scream 2 immediately afterward so he he watched scream 2 before watching scream no 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 but scream 2 was in the theaters when he i gotcha i gotcha that's interesting. <laughs> I love it. At this point, we're going to wrap up our feature review of Scream from 1996. And let's start with Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop. I think it's brilliant. I think it's well-written. I think it's well-made. I think it's there was nothing like it before. And really, there's been nothing quite like it since. Uh, I think it gave horror the shot in the arm it needed to survive the 90s. And to come roaring back in the 21st century. Um, my daughter's named after Sydney. I got to give this one a 10 out of 10. Uh, you've got to own it. If you are a fan of horror films, there's no reason not to own it. If you're a fan of good filmmaking, you should own it. So go get Scream. All right. Kyle says it's a 10 out of 10. He says buy it. All right. And what about you, Wolfman Josh? Well, I've already mentioned that I've owned four to five <laughs> copies of the VHS of this film. So it's probably not too big a surprise when I'm going to say this is a 10 for me and it's a buy it. I, my only regret is that I just could not help but fanboy out I, about this movie. And so I don't know if my critical analysis is where it needed to be because I just love it so much. And really we haven't, I haven't had an outlet for that yet. We didn't cover it on our top tens right. and, uh, and I bring it up quite often as the listeners know, but I just have, we haven't had a chance to discuss it. So I, I probably spent more time geeking out than I did uh, talking about some of the specifics that would make my case stronger. Because I know there are listeners out there. David, I'm looking at you. I know that you were skeptical, and I hope that I was able to convince you in some small way. Well, how does he feel about Scream? I forget. Oh, I just, I don't know. He just seems pretty dismissive of me bringing it up. If memory serves, now this could be, there are three listeners in particular who are very active on our message boards. There are many, but there are three who 
they call themselves Huavino because we often <laughs> credit one with the other's words on the show, which I may be doing right now. Yeah, but that's 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 Juan, David, and uh, Dino. Dino, and mm-hmm. so oftentimes because they are so prolific in their message board comments, not only here but on all the other podcasts that we're involved with, we sometimes mix up who said what. So I hope I'm not unjustly getting after David, but I do think he's a skeptic about Scream. He's the one that always brings up popcorn. Well, popcorn was 91. They were doing it first. And You know what? You just go after David. That's fine with me. <laughs> David, <laughs> I'm calling you on the carpet. No, what I'm really saying is, David, I hope I didn't fanboy out too much that I was able to give you some legitimate reasons why I think this movie is great. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a 10 for me. It's a buy it. Well, your enthusiasm, I have to admit, I mean, you're th- you can hear it in your voice. The excitement and enthusiasm in your voice alone is a huge convincing selling point to your review. So, okay. so yeah, that's a compliment. <laughs> right. I, know that, I know that pains you. Well, no, I mean, I, the thing is, if something's good, you got to call it good. You know, you got to call something what it is. Now, I am very conflicted on this. Do you know, I don't believe I have ever rated scream me neither man this is a first for all of us really okay yeah i mean i don't think on, on all these horror podcasts i don't think i have so yeah i am very conflicted in rating this having never done it before and i'll tell you why and this is why because you know we take these number ratings like way too seriously but back in the day when we recorded that horror palace special it was episode number six when we did the best horror movies of the 80s and 90s Greg Amortis and Dr. Shock covered the year of 1996 when this came out. And just a side note, both Greg Amortis and Dr. Shock chose Scream as the number one movie of that year. For me, that would probably have been number two of 96 for me. I'll just admit that. And here's why. Because I freaking love From Dusk Till Dawn. I'm obsessed with that movie. because, And it's not a better film, but I saw that in the theater with absolutely no idea what I was about to see. (laughs) And Kyle Bishop, get this. I was on a date with a very conservative gal. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And and I didn't, she didn't know either, you know, and then um, it was just horrendous experience, but also awesome at the same time. So yeah, Scream would have been my number two for that year because of From Dust Till Dawn. But guys, here's my problem. Having discussed it tonight and admired so much about it, it's like, okay, how many points? It it doesn't even seem fair to take off points because I don't like horror comedy. Although I know other horror critics who do things like that. But like, for example, I rated Halloween 1978 an 8.5 out of 10. So it's really hard for me to feel okay about giving Scream something higher than that. However, I will say um, that... Halloween is kind of a slow burn. It's effective slow burn, but I don't love slow burn movies, generally speaking. And Scream is, as far as pure entertainment value, you know, Scream is really entertaining the whole way through. So I have no idea what to rate, <laughs> what to rate this because because I'm, I'm yeah, it's one of those damned if you do situations, uh, damned if you don't. Because if I just, rate it higher than Halloween, people no, are going to no, be no. like, rate it on its own merits, man. Don't do it comparatively. Well, the reason I, the reason you're right about that, but the thing is, I, I try, I like to imagine and lie to myself that that my ratings 
are uh what's the word <laughs> like, being recorded in heaven by angels yeah yes and that they're they're relative to each other there there's a reason why i put one film you know higher than the other one but but no i'll just do it i i'll just do it i just gut check it <laughs> yeah well okay my my gut check is i just can't even yeah okay screams screams got to be like it's an 8 out of 10 for me. I say buy it. I, it's a must-see. I'll admit it. There you go. It's, it's a must-see and it's a buy. If you like horror to any degree, you have to see this. I'm sure everybody has. Um, and yeah, it's it's remarkable. It's very impressive. I respect it immensely. But um, Halloween's 8.5. So what I really <laughs> want to know... <laughs> it's higher. I really know. What I really want to know from our listeners is... If you're new to Scream, like let's say you just saw it in the last year or two, what is your opinion in that case? That, that's those are the people I'm most interested to hear from. Are people who saw this as with fresh eyes as a modern audience, and mm. if the film hold, held up for them, and if all of this postmodern conversation was still as meaningful, entertaining, et cetera, as it was for us back in 1996. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I am also interested to, because, and we've talked about this before, I, our, our reviews of these older films are so colored by nostalgia that I'd really like to hear from somebody who's just encountered it. Is yeah. it dated? Does it work? Uh, does it look as a, a, as a history piece? Or, or is it still effective? Yeah. And let us know. You can let us know um, by emailing us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com or you could just leave a comment in the show notes for this episode. So we're going to have some awesome contests for this Scream franchise review like we did with the Friday the 13th. And for this first episode, if you pass this on to your followers on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, if you're not any of those social media platforms, you need to personally recommend this podcast to a friend. But if you're on those, I don't want any of this personal recommendation stuff. I want to see this on Twitter. Tag Horror Movie Cast on Twitter. Tag Horror Movie Podcast on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You can tag me at Icarus Arts so we know. We'll keep track of this. If you tweet this out to your followers, if you put this on Facebook, this episode, you'll be entered in a drawing for a Blu-ray of the first film, Scream 1996. We will draw all of these on our franchise wrap-up episode, as we did with Friday the 13th. And so, yes, tweet this out. Let people know. We want as many people as possible to hear this episode and start listening along with the franchise review as it progresses. All right, and before we wrap up episode 65 of Horror Movie Podcast here, I have a really special treat for the listeners of this show. We always try to figure out ways to, I guess, (laughs) reward you all for being like so faithful and so patient and so active and so supportive. I mean, we've gotten some tremendous iTunes reviews and honestly, I like to try to find ways to give back. Well, here is one way. So please don't turn off the show yet. This is very special. Let me give you a little context. I have a good friend. He's one of my very close friends now And he is in Fowler, Indiana, and he is one of the kings of the geeks. You may even call him the king of the geeks, actually. He's my co-host over on Movie Podcast Weekly, but even more importantly, he is the host of the GeekCast Live Podcast. So I want to welcome GeekCast Rye to Horror Movie Podcast. Hello, Jay. (laughs) Hey, buddy. 
So How are you, uh, sir? I'm good. I'm good. So before we get going into this, just so the listeners know, because you know, horror fans want to know this kind of stuff. Name your name your favorite horror film all time. How about I name the one that scared me the most? Yeah, that works for us. Um, it would be The Grudge. Ooh, okay. So like the 2004 American yes. remake version. Then. Yes, the the time and place in my life, uh, I was I was moving into my new house, and as we've talked about on uh, on, on on MPW, uh, my house was the old. That's they hung people in my front yard. <laughs> they literally, yeah, used to hang people in your front yard from the tree that is still there, right? From the tree that is still there. So there's always <laughs> been this aura around the house that it's been kind of spooky. Anyway, <sighs> well. Uh, I had just moved into the house and there's the scene in the grudge where like the little cat kid has like his hands on the, the, the railing of the stairs yes. and he's got his head kind of in there. Yes. Well, uh, I was living by myself and I was a total bachelor and I had like, I never went upstairs. I had all my stuff downstairs. So I'd walk in the door from work. <laughs> I'd sit on the couch and that was where you'd find me at three o'clock in the morning. Well, it was dark. I had just watched that movie, and I think it came out right around Halloween, if not on Halloween. Exactly. It was October 22nd, 2004. Okay, so it was real close. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went and saw it, and I went and saw it by myself, which was weird anyway. And then I'm, I'm so it's, it's four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. It's, you know, like one of those full dark, no stars kind of evenings. Yes. And I'm laying on my couch, and uh, I didn't know it at the time. But I had raccoons living in between the floor and the oh, ceiling. Yes. <laughs> and there was this crazy scratching noise. And I swear that cat kid was sitting in my stairs oh, looking at me. Yes. <laughs> just, I remember I had, I had lived in the I had bought my house. I moved into my house on October 10th. So I lived here for 10 days. <laughs> and I uh, three o'clock in the morning, I'm in my truck driving back to my parents' house because there's no way I'm staying there by myself. No and kidding. I'm a, and I'm a grown ass man. Right. <laughs> I, just couldn't, I couldn't handle it. <laughs> so the grudge really messed with me. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, um, I'll tell you something that if you haven't seen it yet, the original version, which is called Juan from 2002, I, I personally believe it's even scarier. So, I mean, that'll <laughs> that'll change you about stairs. But I got a story about The Grudge from 2004 as well. Wow. Uh, yeah, I took my wife, uh, Natalie, to see that. Somehow I talked her into that. She is not a horror fan at all. But I, I don't know. I mean, we were just married a few months, and I took her to see it for, like, Halloween, right? And she just vowed never again, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> she was never going to watch a horror movie again. It really wrote her off from, I mean, she just was done. But I tell you, that freaking movie has ruined me for addicts. I cannot <laughs> stick my head up in an attic ever again because of that movie. It's really crazy. So, good pick, brother. It's stuck with me. Of all the horror movies I've seen, that one has always been in the back of my head. Yeah. Well, and to this day, my brother will still call me at random times. You know that weird, like, uh, yeah, exactly. noise in that movie? He'll call me at weird <laughs> random times, and I'll answer the phone, and he'll just be on the other side of the line doing that because <laughs> he knows that movie messed with me so much. Oh, it's hilarious. I love that. <laughs> All right, well, now that they've got a feel for you here, the horror fans, they, they, they like to know where you're coming from, like what kind, of, <laughs> what kind of man you are. And so it seems like you're like a supernatural, ghost-type, haunting kind of guy. 
So now that we know that for context, uh, Geekcast Rye here, he has a tremendous concept that we want to let you guys know about. And we want to tell you how you could potentially be involved in this. And I mean directly involved. So, Rai, won't you take it over? Uh, well, uh, starting on September 1st, uh, my podcast, the GeekCast Live podcast, are, we are going to be holding a, an open casting call for our latest podcast. I guess you'd call it a, our latest podcast event. Um, we're calling it Fear. Uh, Fear is going to be a story-driven, apocalyptic, and post-apocalyptic role-playing podcast. Um, it's a little unique in that we're not trying to do a, a like a radio drama. Um, we are looking for players to actively come on the show, role-play in this uh, game system, in this world that we 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 have. And, and I'm not, I don't want to give up the ghost too much. You know, I don't want to give up too many details about what the, what apocalyptic event it is. Um, but we are, we are looking to, to cast the show and, uh, the people that don't listen to this show are going to have to wait to hear the details on how to get, uh, their admission in, uh, you guys are going to get to hear about it about three days early. <laughs> yes. That's so, right. so Ryan, just real quick though, I want to, so I know, I know you're keeping you're playing the cards close to the vest here a little bit, but now for this horror audience, just so they know, this will be a horror themed. Oh, absolutely. Role-playing interactive audio podcast, right? Absolutely. So, so there is, there are monster elements. So people know, but like I said, he's playing it close to the vest. So go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, we, uh, we're having three rounds of auditions. The first round of auditions go like this. We are looking for a two to three minute long MP3 audio file of you, not in character, of you. Your name, where you come from, what experience, if any, you have with role playing, and uh, some of your likes and dislikes when it comes to the apocalyptic <laughs> trope of of things mm -hmm. and uh if you can email that to us by september 14th at gclcasting at gmail.com we are going to go through that and we are going to uh you know if, if we like what we hear we're going to move you on to the second round and details will follow whenever that happens probably uh september 16th september 17th so this is your uh this is your like three-day head start on everybody who doesn't listen to this show Mm hmm. And the objective of this podcast, just I can't underscore it enough. I mean, it is going to be a horror themed podcast, which is, um, you know, your intention is to bring a little bit of little bit of fear, so to speak. Oh, uh, uh, buckle up. Uh, think <laughs> things are going to get scary. That is our that is our goal with this. And and, you know, it's it's uh, it's whatever. I think whatever your definition of scary is, I think we're going to have elements of that. So it's going to kind of be something for everybody. Uh, you know, I want to I want to have an audio jump scare. I, I want to have um, that kind of horror where it's not it's it's more um, it's more tension and what's going to happen than it is actual. It's, it's you know what it's fear and that's why we've called it such. Yeah, well, I tell you, one time. Um my grandmother, this is kind of, you know, she's deceased now, but 
one time she actually told me about what the real definition of fear was because Ryan and I haven't really shared this too much, but this audience knows that uh, sometimes I tell like ultra uber personal things on podcasts to these people that I don't really know. And it's kind of awkward and everybody's like, okay, Jay and the dead, that's, <laughs> that's weird. But you know, she told me she was very ill and you know, she was kind of bedridden basically. And she wanted me to hear about this experience she had in her life and what was the most scary thing that ever happened to her. And I, I, this is kind of random that I'm bringing it up, Ryan, but it does, it makes me think a lot of what you're talking about here. And so anyway, she saw like really thin and kind of bony, a little bit unsettling to me, I guess, sure. if I'm being honest. But she wanted me to come over because she was kind of weak and talking quietly. And I got up in her ear and um, she said, <laughs> So that that's, you know, that gives you a sense, right? So you're going to be trying to like make this an interactive experience, not just for your role players who are participating in the game itself, but also for listeners who are enjoying this drama as it unfolds, right? Absolutely. Okay. This is, uh, we truly want you to become part of the show. If you get picked to be a member of the cast, if you actually are in the show, our goal is that you you really get into the role-playing side of it because, you know, first and foremost, that's, I mean, we're the GeekCast Live podcast. We've been role-playing and, and, and playing Dungeons and Dragons our whole lives, uh, the entire cast. So this is something that is near and dear to us from that side of it. But one thing that there's a, a, a shortness of is this f scary tension building show. And, uh, and that's what we're, we're going to, we're going to experiment. We're going to see what we can do. And I think with, uh, uh, if we get the right group of talent, I think we can do something pretty cool. And um, something that I'm really excited about personally, and a big reason why I want to vouch for this on this podcast and encourage you all to participate and to audition is because, um, first of all, Ryan and his guys, they don't do anything half-heartedly. They're pretty hardcore. And so this could be a really remarkable and noteworthy thing. And also, in addition to that, I understand that um, they're going to be seeking some very specialized advisors, which is all we can say about it right now, but some actual coaches on some certain aspects of of the horror elements of this podcast. So I, I'm really excited about that as well. Absolutely. All right. So Ryan, tell them one more time what they can do to try to audition and participate in this awesome event. By September 14th, send in to gclcasting at gmail.com a two to three minute long MP3 introducing yourself. Letting us know a little bit about you. Tell us if you have any. And, and that's the other thing, too. You don't have to have a history in role-playing in order to do this. If you've never role-played before a day in your life, but you want to see if you can be a part of this, don't let that hold you back. <laughs> role-playing is something that everybody does, whether they know they do it or not. Anytime you make, you know, if you talk to your kids in a funny voice, if you're ever, you know, you're not dad anymore, you're the pirate you're role playing. So everybody's done it. Anybody can do it. Do not let that, don't think that's a prerequisite. Mm -hmm. But uh, just send in a two to three minute long, you know, introduce yourself to us and email it to gclcasting at gmail.com. And we will absolutely let you know if you don't make it. And we'll absolutely, absolutely let you know if you make it on the round two. <laughs> 
That's right. And yeah, and for people who just love podcasts in general, and especially if you love all things geek or geeky things, like basically name it. And seriously, they discuss it. Check out the GeekCast Live podcast. I think you'll have a really good time over there. So, uh, Ryan, thanks for being here on Horror Movie Podcast. And um, anything else you want to say to the listeners before you head out? Check under your bed and leave the lights on when you sleep. (laughs) Okay. Good job, buddy. Thanks for being here. (laughs) No problem. Okay, and I think that just about wraps up episode 65 of Horror Movie Podcast, our first installment of our Scream franchise review. We thank you for listening, and we hope you had a good time. You can join us again next Friday for episode 66, when we'll be reviewing Scream 2 and Scream 3 at least. And our special guests for that episode will be Matroid and Station from the Sci-Fi Podcast. So subscribe free in iTunes if you haven't already to make sure that you don't miss any of those episode releases. And by the way, speaking of the Sci-Fi Podcast, coming up very soon, they have reviewed the entire Alien franchise, and I was a special guest on both of those episodes. I mean, you're looking at at least like four or five hours of content, and they're tremendous shows. Not because I was on it, but because these guys can bring it when they talk about sci-fi. So make sure you watch for that episode. We love your comments, so please get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community, and for those of you who are already active, keep them coming. You can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode or any episode. You can also email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com and we have a voicemail line at 801-382-8789. You can find all of our back episodes, our entire archive, all 65 shows of this podcast, as well as the weekly Horror Movie Podcast, the first incarnation of this show, and Horror Metropolis, the second incarnation. And those are all found at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. And don't forget, we have two different Horror Movie Podcast t-shirts. These are official t-shirts. They're for sale now on our website, and they're quite nice. I'm actually wearing one right now as I record this. I'll also have that page linked in the show notes for episode 65 here. And don't forget to check out Kyle Bishop's book. It's called American Zombie Gothic. You can find it on Amazon.com. I own it and I love it. He's also got another book coming out just in time for Halloween and I've already purchased that one. You can pre-order it. You can follow Dr. Walking Dead on Twitter at DRWalkingDead, and you can also follow Wolfman Josh on Twitter at IcarusArts. And make sure you listen to his movie show. It's called Movie Streamcast. It's one of the best movie podcasts on the internet. I'm not even kidding. Check out Dr. Shock's amazing movie blog at DVDinfatuation.com. He writes about one movie a day, every single day, forever, basically. He's also on Twitter at dvdinfatuation.com, and he's a co-host on the world-famous Land of the Creeps horror podcast, where they help keep horror alive. And remember, you can hear the sister show for this podcast over at moviepodcastweekly.com. We review new movies that are currently in theaters from all genres, so check that one out. It would make me really happy. 
I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com, and I'll have that linked in the show notes. And as I said, all of this actually is going to be linked in the show notes for episode 65 here. So if you have no idea about everything we just plugged, it'll be there. And that's it. This was episode 65. Thank you for listening and join us again next Friday for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Designed and directed by his red right hand